Today's episode of Something to Wrestle With is brought to you by our friends at BrandNewHouse.com. At BrandNewHouse.com, you can get out of that old apartment and into a brand new house with no money down. And your new house payment, that's going to be roughly what you've been paying in rent. Why wouldn't you do this? You don't know any super wealthy renters. Let's go ahead and experience the American dream and let First Family help you make it happen right now at BrandNewHouse.com. You don't need a down payment. Your new house payment, roughly what you've been paying in rent but no more noisy upstairs neighbors, no more sound ordinances. You don't have to have a pet deposit, man. Now you got a backyard. You can even get a garage, get something to claim your own for your family. And first family can help you make it happen. Even with credit scores in the five hundreds. That's right. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And it's free to find out how easy it is to become a brand new homeowner. Get out of that apartment, get into a brand new house. Check it out right now at brandnewhouse.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Welcome to Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. No, you There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. Thank you, Bruce. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks. No, we're not. Oh, what are we listening to, Bruce? Listen to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. But you know what? I was I was seeing this thing, and they were talking about how all podcasts, that they all have their voices way down here, and this is what makes podcasting cool. Oh, well, that's what Edge and Christian do. And believe it or not, they have a show again, and it's on Westwood One with 83 Weeks. Well, there you go. But, uh, something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard has more downloads than both of them combined. Well, true, 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 man. We're back at it again this weekend. You and I are going to be on the road in Los Angeles, California. And then next week we're in Winston Salem. And we just found out that the show sold out. So they're going to go ahead and release some standing room only tickets. So if you haven't already, and you'd like to see Bruce and I do our thing in LA or Winston Salem, come join us. Tickets are on sale now at brucepritchard.com. But I feel like we need to, uh, start off today's show talking about last week and his Lordship, William Regal. Great response from that show. I think people really dig it when we do the personality profiles. And Regal has such a great story with a happy ending of how he was able to sort of overcome all those demons. And man, nobody had a career like William Regal. Am I right? I forget sometimes when we do a show and it's about someone that I, that I consider a friend and that I really like and really proud of that I feel as if ah, maybe we didn't give them enough. Maybe we didn't do enough. And, and sometimes people like to, to dwell on the dirt, if you will. However, I guess there was some in there, and then William had his ups and his downs and his challenges throughout his career. But to me, it was such a good story. He's such a great guy, and it was nice to hear the response back from the audience that they really dug it and that there were just as many William Regal fans out there um, as you and I. So it's pretty good shit. 
It was good shit. We had uh, lots of people who had their favorite William Regal memories. They wanted to know, why didn't you talk about this one? Why didn't you talk about that one? But one of the more famous scenes that I saw that I knew you probably had a story about is when he was doing the brass knuckles and he knocked out Big Show and Big Show fell on him. And that counted the pin. What a great finish that was. To me, that had Brian's fingerprints all over it. Am I wrong? No, it was, it was actually Regal's fingerprints all over it. And the other thing that happened when he was working with the Big Show was when Regal would get out, Regal would use working knucks, if you will, okay? And they could, if you were to squeeze them, you could see they were working nuts. They were still pretty damn solid. But if anybody were to step on him in, in that regard, the size of the Big Show, you could clearly see they were working nuts. And Big Show stepped on the fucking working nuts one time, and it just you know kind of squished down into nothing. But, of course, you can sell that because he's a goddamn giant. But that was that was Regal's finish for that thing. It was, what if he fallen fell on me? Are, are you saying working nuts as opposed to working nuts? Well, I, I might have said nuts one time in there, but I didn't think anybody would catch it. Because I meant working nuts. Sort of like you last them, week. You keep them down in your nuts. Sort of like last week when you said Rick Springsteen. No, I really meant Rick Springsteen. <laughs> well, you know, fuck. It's you know what I meant. No, I knew exactly what you meant, and I didn't even catch it. And then when people started busting your balls, like more than one on Twitter, I was like, oh, fuck, he must have really squished together Rick Springfield and Bruce Springsteen and created a new third it's like the, the ripoff it's like the uh, what was it called the macho warrior rick hogan that was like right. your version yeah yeah it was it was his second cousin three times removed uh, versus the family burnham schnaven absolutely yeah chip pace well we're gonna do a lot at your pace across the pond we're excited man this should be fun you and i believe it or not are going to europa which is uh, a line you used about the European champion when you said, yeah, he's the champion of Europa and we're going to be going to all kinds of places that I'm going to mispronounce. Tell them all about it, Bruce. Well, December 4th, we're going to be in Glasgow, Glasgow, Scotland. And from there, we're heading over to Northern Ireland, Belfast on December the 5th. Now, only a few tickets remain for those. Then we're going to London. We're going to Jotwell. First, we're going to go to Birmingham. We're going to England is what I meant to say. We're going to be in Birmingham on December 6th, London, December 7th, Bristol, December 8th. And December 9th, we're going to finish up the tour in Liverpool, England. And man, it's fight forever live wrestling going to be taking place so going to have a lot of great stars there including jimmy havoc that's the uk's own jimmy havoc they go jimmy jimmy fucking havoc something like that he has a cool chance well i'm excited my main man cody's going to be there pick up tickets to see all these shenanigans at brucepritchard.com and you can also pick up tickets to see us in colorado springs which is our first trip there on january 19th eight days later we're going to be in phoenix for the royal rumble on january 27th and don't forget to go see Eric and Bruce right there in Friendswood, Texas at the beginning of the month, Saturday, January 5th, but last and certainly not least the super show you and Eric Bischoff happening Mohegan sun, Connecticut. Our first trip there. March 1st is the date circle your calendars and pick up tickets now at brucepritchard.com. And, uh, it's going down the weekend where they're doing maybe the biggest NWO reunion ever. It's going to be a super wrestling convention that you don't want to miss out on. We're going to have our pick of guests and 
Uh, I just confirmed a special guest for LA and one for Winston-Salem. You never know who's going to show up with these things, right? Absolutely. But the only way to find out is to actually be there live and in living color. Because if you're not there live, then you're not in living color. You're like in dead color. So you want to be there live in living color. Yeah, you're in live and in living color on Patreon as well. If you want some more bonus content, you've got a question you've always wanted to ask Bruce. He's doing Q&As every single week. We've got bonus content coming to you as well, including some more Survivor Series fun stuff. Uh, so check it out if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle. Bruce, enough filibustering. Let's get into why we're really here, man. It's all about Survivor Series 1998. Believe it or not, we're right here upon the 20-year anniversary. Deadly Games was the tagline. It went down at the Keel Center in St. Louis, Missouri. It did a 1.3 buy rate for roughly a $5.8 million company gross. Get back in your way back machine. Do you remember you guys being excited about the number or is that a bit of a disappointment? No, you know, during that time, the pay-per-view numbers were what they were and it was, it was good. Now, if they were extraordinarily low, we'd probably hear about that, but if they were in the norm and we were making money, then you just keep on going and it's business as usual and keep on doing what you're doing. Talk to me about this look for Survivor Series, because this is, uh, you know, in, in 97, you guys had this whole, you know, gang warfare thing going on. It was a different, uh, graphic or logo or look. And here you're bringing in the skull for the deadly game. Who would have been the, the creative person behind the giving these, these are still sort of tentpole events for you at the time. Survivor Series, Royal Rumble, SummerSlam, your four big, you know, super shows. Who would have been the guy or the crew who came up with the tagline deadly games and then this skull look? You know, it's probably something that Vince McMahon came up with as far as the name, but the creative services came up with the look. And this particular logo with the skull and the that whole deadly games, a little tattoo on the skull's head, and the SummerSlam from New York with Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Those two images are by far my favorite of all time images for a, a pay-per-view and for a logo. And I have both of those chairs in my office and they're, they're just cool looking. So it was, it was creative services that came up with the look and came up with the skull and, and that look. But, uh, I think it was Vince McMahon that came up with the God damn it. We'll have games. We'll play some games. You want to play fucky fucky? Wait, did you just say fucky fucky? You want to play fucky fucky? Well, play fucky fucky, pal. Uh, chat me up. Whenever you say, oh, that was creative services. It's almost just like this one size fits all lost and found that you can throw, you know, pretty much anything into. Tell me some names, some people behind the title or the division or the department creative services. The, the head of creative services was a lady by the name of Debbie Bonanzio and Debbie was long time uh, in that department and she eventually became the head of creative services but she had a team of so many people and it was probably gosh i bet 15 20 people in creative services that all contributed so it wasn't just one go-to person we dealt with debbie because she was the head of the department but she would solicit ideas from everybody and vince did that on a regular basis vince would solicit ideas and send out you know, questions to the entire staff. Say, anybody got any ideas? 
we're, we're thinking about doing this. Send us some cool names. And everybody would contribute and send in names and send in ideas. And he would read every one of them and go through it. So there, you never really know who the one person is that maybe came up with that specific design. And, but it was usually Debbie that would bring it to us and, and present it. And she never took credit. She would never, this was her team. How long was Debbie with the, uh, with the company? Good God. Probably 20 years. Is she still there now? I don't think so. I, I don't think that Debbie is still there now. Um, but she, man, she assembled a, a hell of a team and she had some great people. The only person that I know of that's, I think is still there is a guy by the name of John Jones, who his, his the guy, last oh, yeah, that's the UFC guy who does cocaine, right? No, no, I'm not. I, I don't know about his cocaine habit anymore, but, uh, John's a creative son of a bitch. Okay. So oh, long color. Okay. Uh, what did you think of, uh, the deadly games music that, uh, Jim Johnston, <laughs> I, I assume put together for this. You mean, you mean the, the deadly games, deadly game, deadly, deadly games. That was a pretty cool song, man. It was, I thought it was drizzling shit. I had to go back and forth listening to it, but that's how I went. Deadly game, deadly game, deadly, deadly games. It's fucking silly. He listen, he's, he's had so many hits, but this is maybe one of the misses we can count. This was, this, (laughs) this was kind of one of those, God damn it. I want deadly games. And he sat down, you know, with the little auto tune thing, deadly games, deadly, deadly games, deadly games. So, so the building where the show's happening at the time is the Keel center. It's later renamed like the Savas center, probably butchered that in 2000, it becomes the Scott trade center in 06. And then this past year it was renamed the enterprise center, but St. Louis has been, you know, a historic spot on the wrestling map going way, way back. And this keel center was erected in 1994 and it was essentially replacing what had been, I don't know. I mean, one of the landmarks of professional wrestling keel auditorium. I think it was, uh, opened in the thirties, tons of championship matches there, you know, from my lifetime, that's where they did the silly black scorpion starcade with sting wrestling, Ric Flair under hood. They tore the building down in 92, but talk briefly for a minute about the notoriety that that keel auditorium had and its significance in wrestling and specifically in st louis well first of all you have to just talk about the significance of st louis in general in the wrestling world which is where sam mushnick was a promoter and he was also the head of the nwa for so many years but sam was a newspaper guy he was a promoter and one of the most respected promoters in the entire world uh, in wrestling but the Keel Auditorium is where they had their house shows for umpteen years. They also used to do TV at a hotel called the Chase Hotel. And if you ever get a chance to see Wrestling at the Chase, go back and check those out because they used to have a wrestling ring in the grand ballroom of the Chase Hotel. And they would have tables where people had dinner and they would come in their tuxedos and they would have dinner and have it was a black tie affair to go to wrestling back in the day. But this is how uh, historic that St. Louis was to the old timers and guys like that. And I always traveled with Jerry Briscoe. Jerry and I, until it was torn down, 
used to go by and make the trip every single time to go by the old Keel Auditorium. And it would be the same kind of conversation every time. I, here, here's the back door that we used to go in right there one time, and then Jerry would be off on a story. But it was it was this history that for me, every time that we would drive by it, you, you could feel the the history and you could feel the atmosphere of St. Louis and how important it was to wrestling. I, I used to love to go by the old buildings just to see them. And and hear stories about yesteryear. Well, let's catch you up to where we were 20 years ago. We're coming out of the Judgment Day pay per view, which we recently did a show on, which is available in the archives now at somethingwrestle.com. Uh, but now we have no WWF champion. Uh, and, and it's the first time that this has happened in like a decade uh, since the whole main event debacle where there were two twin referees. And now we had to have a tournament at WrestleMania 4. So we're going back to that story here, but now Steve Austin was the champion, um, at breakdown in September, the month prior to that, he wrestled the undertaker and Kane in a triple threat match. Undertaker couldn't pin Kane and Kane couldn't pin the undertaker. And in the end, they just double choke slammed Austin. They both pinned him and Vince leaves with the belt. So then the next month at judgment day, which is one month prior to this show, the undertaker's wrestling Kane for the vacant title and Austin is the ref. And Vince says if he didn't humble himself and raise the hand to the winner, he'd fire Austin. And in the same promo that he told Austin he'd fire him, he also says he has balls the size of grapefruits, which I believe is the first time he said that. And the match ends with stunners to both Kane and Taker. Still no champion. So now here we are in a similar situation to WrestleMania 4. We've got to have that tournament to crown a world champion. That's a decade later, though. It's not 1988. It's 1998. Talk to us about the decision to go this route, because when you and I have talked about WrestleMania four prior to this, you would always say Vince hated tournaments. It just didn't work. It died. He didn't want to do it anymore. And now fast forward 10 years, it's not a WrestleMania, but we're doing a tournament is the what, what gets Vince warmed up to the idea of doing a tournament to crown a world champion on pay-per-view again. Well, a couple things, and and one was the influence of Vince Russo, and the other was the allure of saying and guaranteeing, being able to guarantee, you're going to crown a new champion. He 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 did like that part of it. He did like that allure of a tournament, but it was the influence of Vince Russo that got him to do it. And I think that the whole story that surrounded the swerve, building up two baby faces at the same time, for that big swerve and turn, at the end with the Rock, and that's probably what made Vince McMahon agree to do it. And he does do it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, do you think that not having a champion had any impact on the business at all for you guys during that time? I ask because, you know, nowadays there's lots of people on, on Twitter and on Facebook who really believe that Brock shouldn't be world champion because he's not going to work house shows and you need the world title to be an attraction and lots of sort of old school wrestling guys think that you need to have the belt be there. And that there needs to be some stakes for lack of a better word, not Omaha stakes, but they are great. Chat me up though. What'd you think? Did it have any impact on business at all? At this time? No, it didn't because Steve Austin walking out, whether he was, uh, the champion or not, they wanted to see him, and the, it was an explosion. We had really hot talent at the time that 
they didn't care if they had a belt or not. So it, it wasn't as important to the old timers. And, you know, you always like to have a champion. I was always one that was kind of a fan of a long-term champion and somebody that held on to the championship for a while and couldn't be beat, that just held on to that title come hook or crook. Um, but during this time, man, we were flip-flopping the fucker all the time, and you didn't need it. You really and truly didn't need it as much. What? Where do you fall on Brock Lesnar today? Do you think that? You know, I know you're laughing at that, but there's a lot of people who say, oh, we need a champion. We don't need a part-time champion. What say you? Well, I say, leave it on that son of a bitch. And the person that takes it off of him will be hotter than anything they've ever seen. Uh, I called it before, um, even shit, even when Roman Reigns was in the match, I said, man, in Saudi Arabia, put the, put the damn title on Brock have Brock go to the UFC, fight the UFC, no matter what the outcome is in the UFC, you still have Brock as your champion and you bring him back and I'd still leave it on him, especially if he gets his ass whooped in the cage at the UFC. I would leave him as a champion because he's believable as fuck. He has real genuine heat and the guy that beats him is made. When they're ready to make that guy, that's the time to do it. When we're at a time when house show business is down, you don't think that could potentially hurt house show business even further. If you're positioning him as the cock of the walk, the bull of the woods, if you will, and he's not making towns doesn't affect you. You don't think I really don't. I think that right now they're in the business of selling the network and they're in the business of selling special events. And he helps do that. There's only one place and one time you can see him. It's just a different approach and it's, it's a different way to, to skin the cat. And I don't know what emphasis is really being put on house shows right now. Well, fucking none. And that's why the business is down, but I'm glad you mentioned that that's really not their model because the old school way of thinking, and that's certainly what we're talking about here. You know, when we're talking about 1998, you know, your, your different streams of revenue are pay-per-view merchandise licensing live events and some ad sales. Now the game's changed. You know, you need more than one hand to count the revenue streams. And if one is down, eh, you can make it up in the other areas. You're still okay. Well, yeah, yeah. And everything was, and everything was good at the time. So it was, you know, there was always new revenue and whatever came in, it always felt like it was gravy. So let's so talk was- about the, uh, the state of the business here. We're talking about 1998 and I do want to mention you know, where you are in November of 98 compared to November of 97. And I'm a Homer 97 is my favorite year. I preferred it greatly to 98, but everybody else did not. Uh, your average attendance goes from 7,440 fans in November of 97. And that's an average, which includes your house shows and your big shows. And now a year later, your average in November of 98 is up 65.9%. You're at 12,341 fans, which is just incredible to see a 65% hike. But as if that wasn't enough, your average gate goes from $123,445 and it's up 98.4% just one year later. November of 98 clocks $244,941 unbelievable and ratings man they're also up 60 percent, going from a 2.0 to a 3.2 at this point 
in October, November, 1998. Is this the hottest the business has ever been? You were there at the height of Hulkamania. Is it akin to it? Has it surpassed it yet? Where are you in October of 98? Well, it's akin to it. However, it, it is surpassed as far as dollar amounts. You're 10 years later and you're seeing things and you're seeing the logo on things you never thought you ever would. And it just seems everything is, is coming in one on top of another. So it was the hottest that I'd ever seen in the business. It was, it was really an exciting time. New York magazine ran a cover feature on Vince McMahon and the WWF towards the end of October. And the feature uh, or the photo featured is one that Vince actually had hung in his office for a while. I believe it was McMahon and undertaker. And the magazine originally wanted the photo to be of McMahon and Austin, since the story was focused on that storyline, but allegedly McMahon balked at the idea saying it would be unrealistic for them to be able to coexist in the same place at the same time for a photo shoot. And he suggests Rocky Maivia be on the cover instead, but the magazine allegedly didn't think that the rock was a big enough star yet. So they settle on McMahon and undertaker. Man, I love hearing stories like this of Vince wanting to sort of quote unquote, keep kayfabe. I can't be in the same spot as Steve Austin. That's pretty good stuff. Is it not? Well, no, that's what, again, that's urban legend and things that, that got out. Vince wanted rock in that spot because he knew where he was going and the timing of it. He wanted rock to be in that spot. So you tell people what you have to tell them at the time to maneuver around it. And he didn't want to do it with Steve because he was building other people at the time and, and in particular rock. And I think they just settled. Well, if it can't be, it can't be Austin that we want undertakers. Like, God damn. It, it was much ado about nothing. Well, I'm going to pretend you didn't tell me that. Cause I really want to believe that McMahon was just trying to keep gay fame. God damn it. I can't be on the cover with him. He's my mortal sworn enemy. <laughs> if we got the same route, I'd have to carve his eyeballs out with my toenails. It just so happens I'm paying him more money than anyone ever, but I hate him. His guts inside where it counts. So good. The beginning of November, the WWE debuts on network 10 in Australia. So you guys get an hour in Australia. Is that a big deal? You know, you're really starting to expand your international footprint again. And we've talked about this in some of our shows from like 93, 94, 95, where you were really having to cut back on some of that. And you were losing some clearances in some of those markets. And now you're starting to expand again. That is huge from a merchandise standpoint, but what other revenue opportunities does landing an Australian TV deal represent to the company at the time? Well, it opens up that whole territory. It also opens up even more. So, uh, we had television in Australia through that star Asia because Australia got some of that, but it wasn't Australian television. It was what they would pick up from the satellite and they could pick up some of that stuff. Not all of it. So it was, it was good to have TV on the, on the continent to, to be on, on the island. I like to call Australia an island, um, but to be there. So anytime, any, uh, territorial terrestrial clearances that you can get the better, because it goes right to your audience locally when they have to find you from a satellite or from an external source and it makes it harder, you know, it, 
you want to be easy to buy from. You want to be easy to find and accessible. How are you? How are you monetizing it in in Australia? You guys were doing. Go ahead. They're they're paying rights fees, and they're they're paying a, a rights fee no different than anybody else. So when you sell it to them, they're paying a, a weekly rights fee for it. Thank you. That's what I wanted to get to. It's not just cool that your fans can see it. It's cool that you can make money showing it to your fans there. Roll tight on that. Um, let's talk a little bit about something else that was, uh, a brewing that's going to have a big impact on the company one way or another. Deborah McMichael comes to the company at the beginning of November and is paired with Jeff Jarrett, just like they were in WCW. Now, most of us at the time remember her as being the wife of Steve Mongo McMichael, who was a, a host of nitro, one of the original commentators there. And then eventually a horseman chat me up. How in the fuck does Deborah McMichael come to the company? Well, I'll tell you the story of Deborah McMichael and, uh, Charmel, uh, queen Charmel Booker T's wife. Deborah called me every single week usually on Wednesday or Thursday, every single week. And she'd say, hi, Bruce, this is Deborah. I was just calling. You told me to check in. I just want to see if maybe y'all had anything for me. And I said, Deborah, I will let them know that you called. And every week I would prepare kind of a, a summary of talent. I talked to what talent is out there. Anybody interested in new talent? This guy's looking good from developmental or what have you. And a list of people that had called. And I would always list Deborah on there. And I would always get the the obligatory email back. Don't have anything for her. So this happened on a Friday. Deborah called. I called her back. Said, hey, Deborah. Or she called me on Thursday. I called her back on Friday. Hey, Deborah, um, don't have anything for you right now. You know the drill. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, honey. Boom. Right there, Deborah just turned into moolah for a second. But um, next thing you know, I get a phone call from Vince McMahon. And he says, Deborah McMichael, have her at TV. I said, uh, okay, uh, what are we doing? Just have her at TV. And I'm like, okay. Didn't, didn't ask questions or anything, but I literally just gotten, I mean, probably not even... 30 minutes before that, I'd just gotten off the phone with her telling her no. <laughs> I called her back, said, Deborah, you know how I tell you? <laughs> you never know. Um, can you make TV next week? She said, I'll be there. And there was a, an idea of, I guess, Russo and Jeff Jarrett's that they wanted to bring her in to reprise her role with Jeff Jarrett as, as his valet. So here she comes. Is there any, uh, discussion or question about Mongo and what that whole thing looked like at this point, or are you not, do you know, and it's not discussed or just chat me up? Didn't care. Um, I, you know, I, I knew Steve McMichael from when he had done the WrestleMania, uh, 11 stuff with us and Steve was always super nice. Uh, but I don't, I don't think they were together at the time. I think that they were either separated or getting a divorce or maybe they'd already been divorced. But again, there was no discussion about it. Didn't care. They wanted Deborah. Got him. Deborah. Uh, they divorced October 12th, 1998. So they'd been divorced for just a couple of weeks before she actually makes her debut here. 
Uh, at the beginning of November, Austin is interviewed by people magazine, and he's going to be in one of their year end issues as one of the breakthrough stars of 1998. And then another one as one of the sexiest bald men on television. Uh, and he winds up even passing out an award at the billboard music awards on MTV on December 7th. Is this the biggest year you remember seeing a guy have, I mean, you were there for all the crazy Hogan stuff, but from 1990, the end of 1997 to now here at the end of 1998, is that the most meteoric rise you've ever seen with what he starts the year with Mike Tyson and man, it just does not slow down. I mean, he wins the world title in March. He picks up major steam in April with the whole McMahon thing and they're off to the races. Uh, this is a year maybe unlike anybody's ever had in the history of the company, right? Dude, we, we used to have to have him and rock both because they were just so red hot and the talent was getting so hot. We would have the airlines meet them at the gate and take them not down the ramp, uh, the runway like everybody else. They would, they would take them down the back stairs and they would drive them if they had a connection or they would drive them to baggage claim. And they would have airport security meet them or private security meet them. It was, it was kind of like the Beatles in, in a lot of respects, the way that people were just – on top of Austin and rock, it was, everybody wanted to touch him. Everybody wanted to be near him. They were red hot on everything. I mean, it was, they were like, as Vince used to say, they were like dog shit. They were everywhere and you couldn't turn, you couldn't turn on an award show or go through anything without seeing an Austin 316 or some kind of rock bullshit out there. 98, definitely the biggest money year of his career. Do you think it was the biggest money year that anybody had ever had in the WWF? Like was his 98 bigger than any of Hogan's years? If you had to guess dollar for dollar, I would say that they were, they were as big, if not bigger but dollar wise. Yeah. Because Steve's merchandise and the, the amount of merchandise that was going out, uh, was incredible. And it was a different time with Hogan. So the dollar amounts were much bigger and the volume was so much more. It was, it was absolutely insane. It was a good time to be in the business. It was a good time to get pay, be getting paid off of house shows and, every, and everything else. Well, it's a good time to be listening to the Pritchard show here because we have got a way to you, get you a bunch of volume for your dollar over at Omaha Steaks. You see, this holiday season, you get to treat your family to world-class steaks, burgers, chops, and more with Omaha Steaks, one of our very favorite sponsors, I get this every single year as a gift for a lot of people I do business with, some of my extended family. And who doesn't love Omaha Steaks? They're a fifth-generation family-owned company. More than 100 years of experience. I've been getting them my whole life, and they're a part of our family tradition. And they should be yours, too, because they're going to deliver you perfectly aged beef that's been hand-cut by the master butchers in Omaha. All the beef is USDA-inspected, and you even have the option to customize your cuts. But now Omaha Steaks is giving you something to wrestle listeners, an amazing limited time offer. It was our biggest hit last Christmas. It'll be our biggest hit this year too. go to omahasteaks.com and enter our promo code wrestle into the search bar. And you're going to get 74% off of an Omaha Steaks family gift package. Now this thing's originally marked at $195. Now you don't need $195 because you listen to something to wrestle. 
you're going to get it for $49.99. This is unbelievable. Tell them all about it, Corny. Well, goddamn, you're going to get four hand-cut top sirloin steaks, two premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks. I love me some chicken fried steaks. Four Omaha Steaks burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four perfectly brown potatoes on rotten, four caramel apple tarts, plus you get four more burgers absolutely free. That means I get two more double meat burgers with double cheese absolutely free, motherfucker. And I got to tell you, this is a party in a box. I love my Omaha steaks as well. And man... You got to get your own all steaks. It is the best value out there right now. Everybody talks about the steaks, but at my house, uh, Mrs. Thompson really likes the burgers that they do. The kids really dig the pork chops, which is pretty random. And I know you, you like that old kielbasa, don't you? You old rascal. Their kielbasa is awful damn good. It's kind of tasty. And my watch just cooked up some of the chicken fried steak the other day and the apple tarts, the caramel apple tarts. Holy, they don't last. That's the only bad thing about them, man, is they're, they're gone quick. But you got to get this limited time offer. It's a limited time package, only $49.99. When you go to omahasteaks.com, type Russell in the search bar and add the family gift pack to your cart. That's omahasteaks.com. Our code is Wrestle. Seriously, hundreds of something to wrestle listeners did this last year. They loved it. You will too. Look up our promo code in the search bar. Wrestle. You can't beat this for 49 bucks. Come on. All right, let's, let's talk about November 1st. We've talked about this in code. We've never really talked about it though. Uh, NBC airs the secrets of pro wrestling show and it gets a 7.0 rating. A seven. And it's on NBC. This is a big deal. Uh, before it airs, you guys even put a statement out, uh, saying that, uh, quote, NBC hired a bunch of bitter masked wannabe quote unquote pro wrestlers that couldn't make the cut. And you say that the real secret of professional wrestling was that quote, all the WWF superstars sacrificed their body and soul to entertain the fans. So on the show, there are eight wrestlers under a mask and they feature a series of vignettes that explain how professional wrestling matches are staged, such as how the participants in a match, including the referee assist each other, how bookers plan out storylines, all sorts of shenanigans. And I remember even as a kid, although I was maybe different from a lot of kids, I was reading the observer. So I was at least a little smart to the business, dude, this is fucking comical. What did you think when you saw this? Well, it was a joke and it was during a time that the secrets of the magicians revealed that was a big, that was a big syndicated show where they would have the magician come out and tell you he's not really sawing the lady in half. We're going to show you how it's done, but we cannot reveal the magician's identity because if we revealed his identity, then by God, all of the magicians in the world are going to get together and have him assassinated. That was what they were selling. And that was the same thing with the secrets of professional wrestling. And they got, you know, a bunch of guys. The, the funny thing about it, the only name that I think participated in it was Harley Race, right. who who played the promoter and booker, you know, and showed him making signs, which was comical. If you're going to have a name like Harley Race, my God, promote it. Um, but I don't know that there were any names. I don't know of anybody else that even participated in it. But it was silly. I thought it was, uh, it wasn't well done either. It just, 
was kind of corny and it, and it was just silly. Uh, did uh, you ever talk to Vince about this? What did Vince think about it? Same thing. It just thought that first of all, you're, you're telling people that the business is a work. Well, no shit. We'd already done that, but you know, you're showing, <laughs> you're showing them how they take bumps. Well, folks, guess what? The bumps hurt and you've got to be a trained professional to do that. Again, it's not a secret. There weren't any real revelations on this show that people were going the next day and going into work around the water cooling. Oh my God. Did you hear what they, they, those guys, they take the bumps flat on their backs. Okay. It just wasn't, it wasn't that spectacular and it wasn't that, I just didn't think it was that well produced. Well, it was pretty spectacular as when Jesse, the body Ventura shocks the world and becomes the world's first professional wrestling governor. Unbelievable that that really happened, but it did on November 3rd. What did Vince, I mean, he and Vince had an interesting relationship. I'm sure it came up. What was Vince saying about Jesse becoming governor of Minnesota? You know, Vince and Jesse have a love hate relationship, but I think deep down under all of that bravado and bullshit, I think they respect one another and half-ass like each other. So Vince was, believe it or not, he was proud of Jesse. It was, you know, one of, one of our guys that, that made it and was legitimized in the real world. So it was, it was good for Jesse and it was good because every time they would want to show footage and want to show WWF footage. So it was, it was good on both sides. I don't think anybody thought it was really going to happen. I'm sure the people in, in Minnesota didn't think it was going to happen, but it sure as hell did. Uh, one of the rumor and innuendos out there is that the late show with David Letterman contacted Steve Austin to appear on their Thursday, November 5th late show. And supposedly Letterman had the idea to have Austin appear to sort of counteract a skit that Jesse Ventura was planning to do on the tonight show on the same night. And Austin turned it down before ever hearing the details, just because uh, he had an early flight. Would that have gone through the company? And would that have been something that the McMahons would have wanted him to do or not do? You know, I, I really don't remember the particulars of it, but it would have gone through the company. And it's something that if I guarantee you, if Vince felt really strongly about that Steve probably would have done. I can only imagine that his travel, especially during this time, because he had so few days at home was one of Jesus Christ. Is it going to be a talk show where we can promote something or is it just going to be a little ha ha skit and together they probably decided it's probably not the best thing for us. But again, I don't remember. I, I can't tell you specifically to that one thing, but that's how those things happened. Let's talk a little bit about the actual storyline that gets us to Survivor Series. The November 2nd Raw was in Houston, your hometown. 12,590 fans on hand, paying an incredible gate, $238,000 in change. And the show opens with Shane McMahon saying that his father wasn't around, so he's in charge. And Steve Austin is going to get a title shot in two weeks on the November 16th raw, which is the night after survivor series. And then Vince shows up in a limo cuts a strong heel promo. And he says that people were probably going to cheer if he were to die. 
and everyone popped big. And then he fires Shane from his position as an officer in the company and says he's going to only be rehired as a lowly referee. And if he didn't do that job, well, he'd go back to being on the ring crew. Now, knowing what we know is going to happen at survivor series, this is fucking brilliantly done. Chat me up. When did you guys first have the idea? Or do you remember hearing that Russo had the idea for this show to turn out the way it does? Because when you watch it back now, knowing the way it's going to end, it's like, man, there were little things going on here that I missed the whole time. And it was right there. Hey man, I'm going to give credit where credit's due. And Vince Russo had this thing laid out beautifully. So they did a hell of a job of dropping tidbits all along the way to where you go back and go, uh-huh, that's where they, 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 they did that then. And, and oh my God, why didn't I see it? So it was, it was great storytelling and it was, they had a plan and they stuck to the plan all the way through. Really, really good stuff, man. If you haven't seen this show in a while, you should go watch it again. I said earlier, 98 is not my favorite year, but this storyline here, this is good stuff, man. When did you know, you know, we've talked a little bit about Shane before, and I'm sure one day we'll do a whole show on him, but when did you know that Shane was going to be a performer? Like not just somebody who's got a spot, but Hey, he's going to be a contributor on a bigger level. He's got it, whatever it is, because whether you love Shane or you didn't like Shane, I mean, he was a part of some, some big moments in wrestling and, and he more than, than pulled off his part from the first day I met him because he was always a performer. He was a performer when he was graduating high school and hanging around with his buddies at the house. He just was one of those kids that was going to steal whatever environment he was in at the time, all eyes were going to be on him and that's who Shane is. So he had it. Plus, I remember when he was on the road with us on the ring crew and being a referee and we we were given strict instructions, you know, no bumps for Shane and take care of him and all this other crap. But he would get to the, he would get to the towns early, obviously set up the ring and he would ask me and Randy Savage, Hey, um, would you guys mind Randy? Would you get in the ring with me? And and show me some stuff. And so Randy and I used to go over to the buildings early in the afternoon after they'd set up the ring and get in the ring and work with Shane. And I was the first one that had to take some of those stiff ass fucking tackles from that crazy son of a bitch. And just try, <laughs> I remember the first time he locked up with Randy and Randy was, Whoa, brother, loosen up. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a dance, brother. It's not a fight. Don't, you don't want to fight with me. Loosen up. So we would go in the ring and every day that we were on the road, we'd get in the ring with him during the day and work out in the ring a little bit. And then we'd go to the gym and work out. And that was early on when he was on the ring crew. Well, that's good stuff, man. You know, I, I don't think everybody knew the way this storyline was going to turn out, but he's obviously going to be a big part at the end. You know, this is natural though. I mean, it feels like at this point, Here's the son who's being defiant and standing up to his dad, which a lot of the audience could probably identify with, but that also means by proxy, he's now took it, taking care of their hero, Steve Austin. And this is good looking stuff for him now. So now he is a clear cut white meat baby face for lack of a better phrase. And, and, and Vince McMahon is still this evil heel dad. And, uh, they're going to tease before the end of the show 
that somebody's going to play hard times. And he says that Shane was nothing like him, but he was just like his mother. And at this point, Linda has never even been on TV. Is this uh, Vince laying the groundwork for a Linda debut or just a way to sort of, you know, disparage him and, and emasculate him and compare him to a quote unquote woman instead? No, that was just a shoot comment. <laughs> that was just ribbon on the square. That's good stuff. Uh, on that same show, I guess we should say DX, which is the outlaws and X-Pac. They're going to uh, go to a no contest with the brood, which is Gangrel, edge and Christian. That's about four minutes and 20 seconds in when Kane does a run in and choke slams, both edge and X-Pac. And, um, this is times when you guys are starting to tease the idea of dissension within DX. Of course, at this point, Hunter and China are already out, but you're flirting with the idea that maybe there's going to be some dissension in the ranks. Uh, on this same show, we get Vince yelling at Michael Cole and boss man choking him with his nightstick. Hawk shows up as if he's drunk and Dross comes out and is beating on him. Uh, and then eventually animal shows up. He looks on in disgust. And then finally animal stops draws and starts yelling at Hawk about throwing a 15 year legacy down the tubes and the fans are booing animal and draws. And then we get uh, Vince yelling at Cornette for wearing out of date fashions and really liking Southern wrestling. Fuck you, motherfucker. I'll kill you, you son of a bitch. Kurgan and Golga Fuck you. are teaming up to beat Mankind and Al Snow. Mankind can't find his sock, so he runs away, which leaves Al Snow against both guys, and eventually he's pinned. Motherfucker. Vince McMahon is trying to kill or kick Shaquille O'Neal <laughs> out of the backstage. May have been funnier if well, he tried to kill hey, him. And let me just say a quick, quick story, man, because we were there and Shaq shows up backstage just walks in we're sitting there going, Oh my God, Shaquille O'Neal. And everybody's running up saying hello to him. And I remember going, Hey man, uh, would you like to do something on the show? I says, yeah, I'd love to. And next thing you know, we just shot this deal with him. Shaq was cool as hell, man. But that, that was a, just a funny little deal. He had whatever the hell he was doing in Houston that night. No one really knows, but he was, Showed up in the back, so we we're like, let's use Shaq. He was nice as could be. Steven Regal, the man's man, goes to a no contest with uh, Gold Dust when Kane shows up, choke slams them both. Uh, Terry Runnels shows up dressed as Marlena, and Kane is about to choke slam the pregnant Marlena, but the officials oh. stop him, so Kane choke slammed Gurria instead. Uh, you made a sound. Do you want to tell us about? Marlena being pregnant. I know that Cornette's gone on record as saying how much he hated it. Not a fan. Uh, I didn't like it. I just thought it. And again, you can hear Russo claim all the time. He, he knew what he wanted to do and all this other shit. They, they really didn't have a plan. And I just, I don't know. I, I didn't like it. And I didn't like the idea of the bumps. And I, I just didn't like it. I, I just didn't like it. I thought it was crass. What if she was pregnant with a hand? Would that have been better? Yes, definitely. Because a hand, you have to understand, can cushion the bumps. And it can absorb much more so than well, an entire fetus. I, you know, I learned that watching the NBC Secrets of Wrestling. That if she there you go. <laughs> if she lands flat on the hand, yes, then it doesn't hurt as bad. That's what they told me around the water cooler. 
Uh, then we see Vince McMahon present mankind with the hardcore title, which we recently covered on an episode here. It's something to wrestle.com available in the archives. And Vince says that he's lost a son talking about how he disowned Shane, but now he's found one and mankind starts to call Vince dad, which is Thank just you, dad. great stuff. Uh, rock would beat Ken Shamrock by DQ with a chair shot in seven minutes and 57 seconds. And Vince said, if rock didn't win the title, he was out of survivor series. So here rock is out now and starts throwing furniture everywhere. And Vince calls and gets him arrested uh, by the police. We see Val Venus and Jeff Jarrett go into it when the blue blazer attacks Val Venus. And we haven't really talked about this in a while, but this is around the time that the blue blazer comes back to TV. Um, you know, we briefly touched on this before chat me up. What did, uh, what did you think about the return of the blue blazer in 1998? Not a whole lot. Uh, um, man, I liked Owen Hart. I thought Owen Hart had the personality and it was Russo who just thought that Owen is Owen wasn't enough. And for Owen to mean more, he needed to do this blue blazer thing and then make the Owen Hart character bigger after the fact. I'm just not a big fan. The headbangers go to a no contest with Thilo and Mark Henry because Kane comes out and well, you know, the rest, uh, the headbangers wind up doing a, uh, a DX spoof in the ring and get little to no heat there. Uh, all Owen would come out next to confront Dan Severn and here he's in a cervical collar and Owen would beat up Severn. Who's then taken out an ambulance and Steve Blackman attacked Owen until the blue blazer saved Owen. That's right. We've proven now that Owen isn't the blue blazer here. So that's kind of fun. Then we see the cage lower. And what do you know? Mr. McMahon manages to lure in Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe and Sergeant Slaughter and boss man destroys them. And this is payback for them. Never coming back after leaving to get coffee on the October 19th raw and boss man is pounding on him with the stick and Patterson's crying for Vince to get him to stop. And he said he would, if they all pledged their undying loyalty to him, Austin makes the save and Jim Ross explains, he's not trying to save them. He just wants to get at the big boss man. Once inside though, Patterson jumps Austin with a nightstick and then Shane comes down to save Austin and Vince saved Shane by calling boss man off of him. And Shane responds by flipping his dad off. And Undertaker comes out with Paul Bear and then attacks Austin in the cage until Kane comes in. The show goes off the air. So a pretty hot finish. And you guys managed to win. You get a 4.8 to Nitro's 4.1. We're just a couple of weeks away from Survivor Series. This is the show before the Go Home show. What'd you think of this Raw? Man, this is an action packed couple hours here, is it not? A lot of shit happening, man. A lot of gaga and a lot of shit happening, but that was the norm. There was, it seemed like every single show was, you got to hold on and wait for next week to see what else is going to happen. It was, things are breaking down in Tulsa. Good God. Wait till next week. So that, and that's in literally, that was, that was the mantra. Things are breaking down in Tulsa. So. That's how the mid South ended every one of their shows. It's like, there would be a wild brawl going on. And it felt like every week, JR was like, folks, things are breaking down in Tulsa. We'll see you next week right here on mid South sports. That's a fresh. Meltzer reported around this same time that as we head into survivor series, there are some problems between the top star, Steve Austin and the WWF 
Meltzer would write, it stemmed from Bill Goldberg getting a role in the upcoming Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, Universal Soldier 2, that the producers originally wanted Austin in. They went to the WWF, and according to what WWF officials claim and told Austin, offered $55,000 for the role. The WWF turned down the offer as being too low without ever even consulting Austin. The producers then go to WCW and sign Goldberg with some of the filming starting around this same time. And Meltzer would say that the real problem comes in when Austin's agent, who I believe is Elliot Pollock, brings the movie up and Austin knows nothing about it. And then he tells Austin that Goldberg was getting $250,000 for the role. So Austin allegedly goes straight to McMahon and complains. And McMahon gave him the $50,000 figure is what was offered at saying that it was too low. And allegedly McMahon put the heat on Jim bell who heads up licensing for the company saying he was the one who fielded the offer and turned it down. And he blamed him for not consulting with Austin first. McMahon winds up sending Austin a company letter of apology for how it was handled. And it was pretty well smoothed over after that, based on what Austin, who is under contract to the WWF through 2002 earns in wrestling and what he'd be worth in the movies at the box office right now, a $55,000 figure for a movie would be low, but he's also never done anything of that type. And sometimes you have to go in low and prove yourself in a new field. There were concerns over Austin when he learned about this New York magazine, wanting him on the cover and McMahon wouldn't allow it and tried to push Rocky Mavia chat me up. Both of these stories coming to a head here. It's painting a picture that maybe, um, things are a little Rocky with Steve. What do you remember about this universal soldier movie role? I wasn't involved with it directly. However, the rumblings going around, and this is a perfect case of people like Dave Meltzer and the Hollywood agents, if you will, trying to stir things up and work both ends against the middle because the agent wants to be the one to come in and say, Hey, look what I got. Look what I got. But they still have to go through the company. And then the company wants to be the one to come in and say, Hey, look what I got. Look what I got. They both want to be the heroes in that situation. Um, again, Meltzer contradicts the fuck out of himself in here by saying, well, Steve entering into movies for the first time, maybe he's got to start lower, but Goldberg gets $250,000. The, the issue is best. I remember there was Elliot Pollack. There was Barry Bloom and there was a lot of, in some people's opinion, conflict of interest because Barry Bloom represented your buddy, Eric Bischoff. But he also represented Bill Goldberg and Barry represented a lot of guys in the business. So there were whispers and whether Barry did this or not, I don't know. And I'm actually a friend of Barry's and I don't have a problem with Barry. But there were whispers and accusations that Barry was whispering and Barry and Elliot Pollock were best friends. That they were feeding things to disrupt and Russell Steve's feathers. And so there was a lot of accusations of that going on and the company trying to protect their interest and in, in everything else. So I think it was a lot, a lot of shit, again, made out of nothing. Uh, it was really something that was small, that was unknown, that, that grew into this big mushroom because everybody got involved and had their two cents in it. Who do you think would have been uh, better in the Universal Soldier role, Austin or Goldberg? 
The Rock. That's fair. Uh, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> I do want to mention uh, that you guys were trying to put together uh, something with Univision, similar to your deal with USA. Uh, Meltzer would say they're trying to get their Latino wrestlers on soap operas and movies on the network, which have a ton of exposure in South America and could help set up tours in that part of the world. The plan right now is to keep the Latin wrestlers off of raw and the other shows. So they don't have the deal where the stars of the Latin show are just jobbers on the real show, which is what killed WCW for making their Telemundo deal. In particular, they're trying to market Tarzan boy and Spanish soaps in the U S to make him a heartthrob celebrity. At this point in time, the idea is to take two episodes of super Astros during every bi-weekly taping. And there are no plans at the present to expand the show from its 30 minute time slot to a 60 minute time slot. Do you remember having a conversation about, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here for us to create some Spanish stars. Let's try to get them on TV down there. That was the goal from day one. And that's exactly how we went into the Univision deal. It wasn't just, Hey, let's produce a 30 minute wrestling show for you. It was, how can we be partners with Univision? I mean, we were a huge part of their upfronts at uh, Tavern on the Green in New York City when the networks all did their upfronts. For Univision, the Super Astros show and the WWF was front and center, and they talked about all of this stuff that was going to be taking place, and that's where I think Meltzer gets a lot of this shit from, is we, when we did the deal, that was part of the deal that we would create stars that you could then utilize in your other programming. And we did stuff on like, uh, Gordo and, uh, La Flaca y Gordo, whatever the hell the name of that show is. But Gordo was a friend of Victor Quinones from Puerto Rico. Really nice guy. He's they're still on, but we were to integrate our stars into the, a lot of the Univision programming, uh, their original shows, and their novellas as well. So that was the deal from day one. Let's talk about the go home edition of Raw's. We had the survivor series It's November 9th. And this time we're in Dallas. There's 13,684 fans inside of reunion arena paying over 274 grand. So a hell of a house. Again, we talked a little bit ago about the uh, history in St. Louis at the Keel auditorium. What about Reunion Arena, man? How much wrestling history was right there in Dallas? Uh, a ton. And I actually was part of the uh, Mid-South NWA co-promotion show back in the day. And it was when we first had taken over the merchandising for Mid-South Sports. And where Michael Hayes said, hey, I swear, I saw at least 10,000 people out there wearing Duke, Duke, Duke t-shirts available at BrucePritchard.com, and I want to know where the hell is my cut. I swear to God, my people counted. His people counted at least 6,000 shirts that were sold that night. Um, I don't even think we had 300 shirts that had ever been ordered, <laughs> much less. But anyway, uh, that was Reunion Arena, and Reunion had a lot of history. It was a cool building. There in Dallas, not as much history as the old Sportatorium, but it still had that history for the those great Christmas nights uh, for the Dallas territory. So let's talk about this show. Uh, there's lots of shenanigans here. Uh, Venus would beat Steve Blackman when Terry's hitting Venus, you know, down there. Uh, Owen Hart would team with uh, the Blue Blazer to attack Steve Blackman. There'd be a three-way with Jesse James, Mosh, and D'Lo Brown. Mankind got a makeover 
This is an interesting skit here. Chat me up about these mankind uh, skits here where he gets a makeover and we see the facial hair go bye-bye. God damn it. Let's clean him up. <laughs> that, that was a Vince McMahon deal that wanted to have him go through the whole beauty treatment. I believe he got, he got his manicure and everything. And what are they doing to my nails, Vince? Um, it was just some good entertaining things to extend that character or make him not so vile. And a little more human. No one knows anybody with a with a beard. Beards are gross. Tell me that's a direct quote. Oh yeah. Dude, back in the day, all right, like for announcers and, and things like that, you could have no facial hair. Now you're gonna say Gene Okerland. Gene Okerland was the only one that had facial hair. Ken Resnick came in for an interview, and Vince said, well, pal, I like you, but the mustache has got to go. And he said, no problem. He goes, all right. Vince reached in his desk and slid his razor across the desk to Ken. And Ken shaved his mustache off in Vince's office. Michael Hayes had a beard. Goddamn, pal. Beard's got to go. Doop, doop, doop. It went. He kept his mustache. He got to keep his mustache. But that beard went, yeah, they're so disgusting. How did I manage to be on WWE network since I, I'm a fat ass with a beard? You think he's just, he just never watch it. You think? Well, Hunter's got a beard now, so it's okay. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. I got it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's cool. Right. Uh, I, I like Hunter a lot more now, actually. Uh, Goldust wrestles Jarrett here and Terry's going to come out dressed as Marlena, but Goldust blows her off. And Deborah winds up distracting Goldust, and this allows Jarrett to hit him with a guitar. Of course, they get a DQ. Um, and then they go to the back where they're doing a rock interview, and the Blue Blazer attacks Goldust. So lots of shenanigans going on on this show again. We get a false count anywhere match for the hardcore title, which we talked about before with Mankind beating Ken Shamrock here. And boss man under orders from McMahon costs Ken Shamrock the match. Uh, Austin and boss man have an argument. And then how about this for a highlight? Tiger Ali Singh is on this show and he beats Al Snow. And uh, Snow was wrestling Babu and gave him a snowplow. And then Deborah stole head and was rubbing his face against her boobs, which distracted Snow. And that allowed Singh to hit a face buster and he pinned Al Snow in two minutes and 21 seconds. Talk about job squad losing to tiger fucking Ollie Singh. Boy, that's in the book of bad ideas. Is it not? Well, Al at least made it to the tournament. That's all I got to say about that. Dude, dude, dude. Thanks for participating. Kane and edge go to a DQ here. You can imagine what's going to happen. There's going to be some shenanigans, but these involve gasoline and a fucking blowtorch. That's what Kane comes out with. And, uh, Christian and Gangrel attack Kane and, uh, eventually choke slams all around. Here comes gasoline on all of them. He's about to light a match and set them all on fire. And the ref tries to stop him, but he gets choke slammed. And then a zillion officials come out, which I guess is good because if he had in fact lit the fire and murdered these three men, he may not be the mayor of Knoxville. Fair to say. Fair to say, fair to say, but, but he didn't, he didn't. It was just the threat 
of haven't you always wanted to just take a blowtorch to somebody and set them on fire? No, I think this that might be a first. No, that, that didn't really happen for me. Deep down, come on. Kane is so mad that he doesn't get to set everyone on fire here. He goes in the crowd and chokes lambs a plant. Like a ficus tree uh, or what? Uh, a person, not a shrub. Oh. oh, okay. Uh, Vince does an interview and rips on the Cowboys, of course, because we're in Dallas uh, and Shane comes out and Vince tells him to leave. Of course, he's not going to. So Vince orders boss man to pound him. And before boss man can Austin makes the save, which is kind of fun. So these weeks leading in the survivor series are really the first time we see Shane in a major role like this, who is sort of agenting him and talking him through what to do when he's out there and uh, just giving him instruction as a guy who's never really been in this spot before Vince McMahon all the way. And he's, you know, giving him that advice. God damn. You got to keep it down here, pal. Don't overdo it. Make it real. So he, he worked, he worked with him on everything. And this was, in a lot of respects, the the first introduction of where we would rehearse. Not, yeah, we would rehearse at this point. We would go into the ring and make sure everything was blocked out and allow guys to go over their promos and and go over where they needed to be for the cameras, but also for Shane to be more comfortable in the ring. Let's talk about uh, the next segment here because this is one that uh, is going to matter. The rock is going to wrestle Mark Henry and with rock winning, he gets back into the pay-per-view, but if he loses, he's fired, but he's jumped in the dressing room and they teased for the last hour that he's not going to be able to wrestle. And if he can't wrestle, he's going to be fired. Eventually he comes out in sweat clothes and the rock beats him, but Delo pulls the ref out of the ring and boss man tries to interfere, but now rock is handcuffed to him in the corner. And with no ref, he gives Henry the rock bottom and the people's elbow and Shane does a run in and counts the fall. So after the match rock pulls Vince out of the wheelchair and gives him a rock bottom and the people's elbow. At this point, the rock is firmly the number two guy in the company. Fair to say. Oh, definitely. I would say he was, you know, between he and Austin, it wasn't equal. Austin was, but it was damn close, man. The pops were amazing. There's no doubt about it to me that, that he's the clear cut number two and being number two to Steve Austin in 1998 is, you know, no big deal, but we've seen this sort of meteoric climb for rock in 98 as well. He has some featured spots in the 98 Royal rumble. He's having a, a split from the nation of domination. He's feuding for the intercontinental title has an incredible match. Uh, a series of matches with triple H and then the ladder match that people still talk about to this day at MSG. But man, again, look at the storyline part of this. If he loses, he's out of the pay-per-view, the nation's involved They jump him in the back. There's all this shenanigans. The referee who slides in to help make the count is who we believe to be the baby face. Shane McMahon, just really, really well done. Uh, the episode of raw is a home run. This go home episode, it gets a 5.0 nitro does a 4.1. So you guys are firmly in control of the ratings war two or three weeks in a row. As we head to survivor series, chat me up. You know, you've sort of talked about it behind the scenes that maybe when one of the top guys starts to acknowledge, you know, I think you've said something like, and I'm paraphrasing, 
boy, you have to do more than that to get the top spot. Be out there raising the eyebrow, doing those silly rhymes. The idea being when you start to get the attention of a top guy, now you're really getting over. Well, that was my barometer because when, when the top guys started not complaining or started mentioning and noticing the next guy nipping at his heels, that meant they were really getting over. And so when Hogan would come in and Hogan would go, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, when a guy comes out, shakes the ropes, paints his face, you know, he's only going to go so far. And Steve starts talking about, yeah, goddamn, he's got the face of little rhymes, raising an eyebrow, don't mean you're over. And when you hear that, you go, yeah, that means they're over when you're noticing and you're telling me that ain't going to get them over. <laughs> That's telling me that they're over with you because you're watching. And I think that there was, you know, that keeping an eye on him because the young kid is, is nipping at his heels and there's always going to be professional jealousy with anybody that's starting to get reactions and people are starting to take notice of. So you're like, get awful protective and the, the hands go up and you're ready to fight. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, what's going on behind the scenes because we've touched on development a little bit, but anytime there's a name like this, I got to bring it up. Kurt angle is in the sheets. Meltzer word report. Kurt angle was the star of the training camp once again, last week, and they've got high hopes for him starting early next year. You know, we've covered Kurt angle in long form and nobody really could have ever predicted. He was going to be the story was because while you may have been a natural in the ring, all the charisma and the personality, yeah, that was still yet to reveal itself. Is this the hottest period? I mean, let's run through what we've got in the company right now. Austin rock, triple H mankind, Kane undertaker. Those are probably your top crop of guys. Fair to say. Sure. And in fucking developmentalist, Kurt angle, Olympic gold medalist. He's that's just mind boggling. When you really think about it, that, you know, it's, uh, you guys aren't just loaded. You're about to reload. I mean, with, with such an incredible roster. And then on the other side of things, he would report that Ted Annis was fired this past week. He had a developmental deal for roughly $25,000 a year, but screwed up in his second straight camp and was sent home early again. Now, Ted, we know as Teddy Hart, we've, uh, we've talked about him a little bit, but never really talked about him much. Chat me up. What the hell happened with Teddy Hart? I think that it was Teddy was 18 years old at the time. He was the youngest talent that we'd ever signed to a deal. Uh, had a ton of potential, probably one of the most naturally gifted athletes that we'd ever had come through. But I just think maturity wise, he wasn't ready for it. So he wasn't ready to be away from home. Wasn't ready to be out on the road and you know, shit happens when you're away from home. And, and he just wasn't a good fit at that time. And we felt it best that he go home and maybe learn at home with the guys there in Calgary that had a training camp and, uh, Leo Burke and some of those guys rather than be away from home, be out on the road and be away from all that stuff. We just, it, it wasn't working and it was something that, um, I felt could have been good. And, uh, for whatever reason, just never materialized over the years. Listen, Bruce, there's been lots of craziness. It feels like everybody in the wrestling business who spent any time with Teddy Hart has a crazy Teddy Hart story. Can you, I mean, there's all the, the silliness of, Oh, he taught his cats to moonsault. I mean, that's a real sentence. Chat me up. 
did you ever see any crazy or hear any crazy Teddy Hart stories from back in the day? <laughs> um, you know, I think that there were enough to go around and I think that credit Teddy is one of those unique characters in the wrestling business that no matter who you meet, as you said, they're always going to have some kind of crazy story. I hadn't seen Teddy in years and I am deathly allergic to cats. And I saw him in, in Philadelphia, uh, the last time that we were there for, for our show at the old ECW arena and some bitch had his cat. And I ran from him like you wouldn't believe. And he informed me, he goes, no, Bruce, it's okay. My, my cat's non-allergenic. It's okay, you know, because none of my cats you can be allergic to. And I was like, all right, man, I just don't want to really test the waters there, Teddy. So, and I got and I got to work with Teddy at uh, MLW when, when I was working with him there. And, and he's, um, he's matured an awful lot. I'll say that for damn sure. Just for the record, you're allergic to pussy. I'm allergic to cats, felines. Feline hair. Well. Horse hair, too. I was going to say, I don't know how you and Flair ever got along. Well, you know, just saying. Uh, Well, I'm just saying, if uh, you'd like to go to a developmental camp of your own and maybe have a better result, uh, you maybe have a solution for them. Tell them about it, Bruce. Well, absolutely. You know, we're talking about Teddy Hart. We're talking about Kurt Angle, and they were both initially trained by the one and only Dr. Tom Pritchard. And if you'd like to learn the right way, and I always say the right way, learn the fundamentals, learn from the beginning from someone who has actually been there and someone who has actually trained the superstars like The Rock, like Kurt Angle, like Edge, and guys that have done it. Go to jpwrestlingacademy.com. Stands for Jacobs Pritchard WrestlingAcademy.com. And my brother Tom Pritchard and Glenn Jacobs, the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, you might know him as Kane the Big Red Machine. Uh, they're opening up their wrestling school in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, check them out over at jpwrestlingacademy.com to sign up. And they're going to start everything up in January. And if you want to learn the right way, that's the way to do it. Learn from someone who's been there and actually done it. I hear that uh, during one of the camps, you learn how to pour gasoline on people. Yes, absolutely. Because you have to do it safely. And you might even get to learn how to choke slam a shrub. Yes. Like a ficus. Well, because, listen, it can be dangerous sometimes. They have thorns and you have to know how to grab it. It was all in that secrets of professional wrestling thing. You got to know where to grab it, how to grab it, how to support the bottom cup of the Furnham Save it so that the dirt don't go everywhere and then be. Well, and you might learn how to get pregnant with a hand, and that will teach you how to sort of take some of the bumps. Well, that we do. We do practice safe hand. Do you get a lot of safe hands in high school? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um. Did you ever have a conversation with Vince about Teddy Hart? I mean, Vince really likes these larger than life characters. You know, we've heard about some of the silliness that has happened with his negotiations with the ultimate warrior and things like that. And if you have sort of an out there perspective, you're a, you're, you're, you're just a character. You're a Roddy Piper. You're an ultimate warrior. Vince always sort of finds a way to make it happen. Did he ever, as far as you know, did he ever actually meet Teddy Hart? And, and what was his impression? 
Absolutely met Teddy Hart in, 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 in Calgary and was like, God damn it, cats! Oh, but I'm sorry. I digress. But uh, no, he, he liked Teddy. But it just, again, it's it's a fit. It's a it's a cultural fit, and he and he didn't fit at the time. You think he ever will? Never say never. Uh, that means crazier no. things have happened, man. That means no. Uh, Meltzer reported uh, that the Undertaker comic book was going to come out in January, and it was a preview issue. Uh, the first issue was scheduled for March and in the comic book, the undertaker will continually battle his nemesis, Paul bear, uh, which on television doesn't really line up. You guys did the ultimate warrior comic book that came out in 1996. And I was actually gifted one over the weekend in Charlotte, uh, someone who came to see Tony and I actually brought me warrior comic, uh, issue number one from 1996. What wound up happening with the Undertaker comic book and why did it end up going anywhere? Well, first of all, it wasn't very good. And I, I remember it. it. It just wasn't very good. And we didn't do the Ultimate Warrior comic book. That was something that the Ultimate Warrior did. And we just agreed to promote it and publicize the damn thing and also make it a part of our magazine subscription for the inaugural issue. It just wasn't good. And I think that Vince was... The publishing side of the business wasn't real lucrative. So he was kind of getting away from that at that time and just didn't think that, uh, you know, God damn, who reads comic books? That was the view. Let's talk about, um, I don't know when we're going to do this again. Let's talk about Stan Lee. We just lost Stan Lee this past week. And whether you were a big comic book fan or not, you have to appreciate the contributions of a genius like this. And some people have compared, you know, him and George Lucas and Walt Disney and Vince McMahon, because they all created like this alternate reality, this alternate universe filled with these larger than life characters. What, how many professional wrestlers and what sort of influence over the industry as a whole, do you think Stanley had huge? And I had the pleasure of meeting Stanley one time at one of those comic con deals, but it was a hello. How are you? And Hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Would, I didn't get to talk to him or spend any time with him, but watching him and seeing him, he was very humble and God, he was great with his fans. But I, I believe that the creations from Iron Man, Spider-Man, all the way down the line, they were larger than life characters that people could identify with because they had their flaws. So it's the same thing in wrestling. It's creating characters. And if you create a character that has its flaws where people can relate to them, then you've cre created a pretty damn good hero. And I think Stan Lee was a genius at creating anti-heroes. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't think it can be overstated his influence in wrestling. I saw dozens of wrestlers on social media, you know, thanking him for his contributions and crediting him to, you know, being a big influence in their wrestling career. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about something a little happier, man. Let's talk about survivor series, 1998. It's sold out 19,322 fans on hand, nearly 18,000 of those paid an incredible 
$470,000 in change at the gate, plus another 147 K in merchandise, just gangbuster business here. Uh, the only dark match was Brian Christopher teaming up with Scott Taylor to beat the Hardy boys. And then it was time to have some matches on Sunday night heat. Bob Holly and Scorpio would team up and actually get a win over animal and draws. And, uh, Meltzer would say real bad with no heat, like negative star caliber. Uh, they do the doomsday device on Scorpio and then draw set up Scorpio for a power bomb, but snow runs in and hits draws in the face with the head. So Scorpio gets the pin, the job squad going over, man. How about that? Beating the new LOD. That tells you where Vince thought the new LOD belonged below the job squad. Well, that's just fucking stupid. Huh? I don't know what the hell we're supposed to do to these guys. Now got beat by the job squad. Am I supposed to explain what the fuck the job squad is? This that's some kind of inside joke. One of your little, little, Hey folks, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's all bullshit. Fuck. Val Venus would beat tiger. Ali Singh in two minutes and 36 seconds with a fisherman suplex. Smells would write. They were debating who the father is of Terry's baby. If it isn't Val, um, Meltzer would write, Singh is a step slow on every spot. Godfather came out and was supposed to whip Singh into the ring post, except Singh whizzed past the post and never touched it. Poor Michael Cole had to sell it like he had, and they went right to the finish. Man, you got to give me something on Tiger Ali Singh. I'm begging. Oh, fuck. That was probably one of the best matches Tiger Ali Singh ever had. Oh, I go into the post. Maybe whiz by. I like to whiz. No, fuck, Tiger. <laughs> I like to whiz is my favorite. Ah, oh, damn. Yeah, he, um, he, <laughs> that was a bill of goods sold to us, man. And, uh, well, shit, sometimes it happens. I like to whiz. I feel like it's going to be a t-shirt. I like to whiz. Next up, we get lots of, uh, gang warfare type stuff, DOA Farouk and Bradshaw, Mark Henry, Dilo Brown, the outlaws, the headbangers, everybody's attacking everybody. Sable's doing an interview where she's guaranteeing that she's going to win. Uh, then she's jumped from behind by Jacqueline, uh, gang gets a win over Steve Blackman. And, um, I guess we're, we're ready to get going here, but first we see the show Sunday night heat go off the air. Uh, with Vince doing an interview where he called out the rock, Steve Austin and Shane McMahon. And it wound up with like a battle Royal with most of the guys in the tournament. As the show goes off the air, you guys are using Sunday night heat to sort of sell last minute buys for the pay-per-view. Fair to say live, live, anything can happen. Tune in to Sunday night heat. And that was our sales. That was the last ditch. If you haven't done so already, call your local local cable operator right now and order Survivor Series, where teams of five strive to survive. Wait, that's the other one. How much thought was put into the Sunday Night Heat show with the idea of using it as a way to get people excited and sell the pay-per-view? Is this something that was a lot of time put in, or do you think by that point, most everybody had made the decision whether they were going to buy it or not? 
No, we still, you know, we still looked at it as a last ditch effort for those people that were on the fence that hopefully it would take them and say, well, maybe I will check this out. And a lot of times we would introduce something new, some kind of little tidbit that for people that hadn't decided to go over. And then people that were ready, it got them warmed up for the show as well. I do want to mention, um, cause I don't know when we'll talk about it again, that this is around the same time where we see blue blazer come down from the ceiling. One of the first times, and they're doing a, a skit here where instead of just coming down from the ceiling, like sting was, they're doing it where he has trouble unhooking himself and winds up being hung a few feet above the ground, essentially making him a sitting duck for blackman, uh, before he gets drugged back up. Was that idea of coming down from the ceiling and sort of mocking it? Is, is that a way to make fun of what they're doing on the other channel with sting? No, it was a failed, it was a failed superhero thing. It was like a, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the greatest American hero who was kind of a spoof of an American of a hero, like, uh, Superman. That's just a spoof. All right. Let's talk about the pay-per-view. Um, we open up with Vince McMahon in a wheelchair surrounded by, uh, his goons, you know, uh, whether it's mankind or it's boss man, or it's Patterson and Briscoe and Sarge, and they introduce and Vince puts him over huge saying that, you know, he's built up a, a record with only one loss, uh, since 1990. And then he decided he needed to, it set a new precedent in the WWF. And then he had to go down to WCW <laughs> and, uh, get some more competition. Of course, what they're trying to do is introduce Dwayne Gill, uh, sp sort of spoofing Goldberg and, uh, yeah, mankind beats him with a double arm DDT. They and weren't spoofing Goldberg at this point. I was just, it was just Dwayne Gill. It wasn't a, it wasn't a spoof on Goldberg at all. Well, that came later. Uh, it, it seems a little bit like it. He says the legend in the ranks of sports entertainment made his WWF debut in 1990 over the course of the next six years. This charismatic superstar boasted a one, a win loss record that set new standards here in the WWF. Unfortunately, seeking more opposition of his own caliber, this natural jump ship to WC, WCW and after WCW. After suffering a massive shoulder injury, the cornerstone of the World Wrestling Federation has been sidelined for the last two years. And uh, eventually they build it up, blah, blah, blah. Here he is, Dwayne Gill. Of course, we're going to spoof him as Goldberg later. But talking about this, oh, this win-loss record, to me, was like, oh, they're fucking making fun. Because the, the, we're in the middle of the streak on the other channel. Well, no. And, and again, if, if it was, and that was something I didn't know, but it was making a spoof of gold of, uh, Gill's win loss record, which he had never won anything. And by God, he was the coach of the Pasadena chargers. Next up, we see a backstage promo where Sable's going to talk about how she was determined to beat Jacqueline after she was attacked on heat. Prior to the show. Hey, Conrad, Conrad, if that, if that mankind Dwayne Gill match had been held in the Tokyo dome, shut up, come on, motherfucker be 82 stars and you know it, you know it. Why are you doing this? Cause it would, it's a great match. 
Hey, by the did way, you see? Did you see the way that, that, that mankind he shot the half Nelson and went down and, and headbutted and rolled him over? That was some good. That was some good goddamn uh, Tokyo Dome wrestling right there. Al Snow pins Jeff Jarrett in three minutes and thirty-one seconds. Um, Melzer would write, they traded moves, but Snow was a little slow and they didn't work together as well as you think. Deborah stole the head. Calm down. But Snow got the guitar. Don't make that face at me. But Snow got the guitar and whiffed on a home run shot. And then uh, Jarrett hit Snow with the head to the back for a near fall. With the ref distracted, Snow gets the head and then clocks Jarrett with it for the pin. Dud. I feel like that's a fair rating. Ah. I like both of these guys, but this match, and this is on pay per view, and it's three minutes and 31 seconds. The match wasn't bad for what it was. It was it was short. It was gaga. Here's what I, the problem I have with the match is the commentary. And this always is just just it tickled me when you have a a plastic mannequin head and JR would continually talk about Al Snow with the wooden head. He's got a wooden head and it was I I don't know, that just bothered me. But the match, I mean, it was what it was. It was a short, let's get started, uh, let's let's go and move on. It's a guy match. The biggest star in the business, Stone Cold Steve Austin, is in our third match, getting a win over the big boss man. Boss man is really beating on Austin with a stick and uh, continues to beat him after the match. It gets half a star. And Austin's in rough shape here. He's limping to the back, and McMahon is being interviewed backstage. And, uh... Vince says there's more where that came from. What'd you think of this? Well, first of all, this is the kind of shit where just, it was never meant to be a fucking match, Dave. Uh, it was meant to be a beatdown. It was meant to injure Steve for later on. And that was, it was a story folks. It wasn't meant to be a 32 star fucking match. It why, was, why, why are you, what's, what's up your ass? Because it pisses me off. It's only a half star with a shitty finish. It was a story. It was a story that played out throughout the night. It was a story of beating Steve Austin Dude, down. It's, so it's that he won't be able to opinion. compete later. It's one guy's yeah. Well, opinion. fuck him. Why are you so fired up? What's wrong with Cause that? you're taking fuck your Dave fuck, Meltzer. Why, why, why are you doing that? Because have you taken I, your I hate his little bullshit ratings because he doesn't understand story. Okay. Well, why don't we, we've established you don't like the, what are, what are you doing? And Can well, we talk instead about of, instead show? of talking about the incredible agility of a 300 pound, big boss, man, okay, I who got moves. It. so you just want to give a hand job to every match. No, All I'm right. not giving a hand well, job me... to every match. It was a story. It wasn't a match. It was a beatdown to fuck with Steve. It was a fucking angle. Do I have a referee and ring the fucking bell? Oh my God. You want every match to be an 18 star match with, with a clean finish and absolutely zero storyline. No, who said, why are you, what's up? What's wrong with you today? Are you off your meds? Yes, I am. Well, fucking take some before this weekend. No, no, my alarm hasn't gone off yet. Well, we can fix that. No, I'm just going to call you every day at five o'clock. No, you don't call me anymore. Cause you don't fucking answer. I called you yesterday and you didn't answer. And then I texted you and you didn't answer. And then today you said, Hey, sorry. I saw you texted and called yesterday. My phone's fucked up. And now you're saying you don't call me. How about your phone's fucked up? Not that I don't call you. Take your goddamn medicine. You don't call me anymore. (laughs) 
This fucking show is fucking negative eight stars right now. This show's a dud. If it was in the Tokyo Dome, it'd be 42. What's wrong with you? Stop saying that. God damn it. It's not 2016. Have we learned nothing? Have we not moved on? It's not 2016. It's 2018. Yes. We'll start acting like it. We're not, we're not busting on Dave Meltzer anymore. Well then fucking stop with his stupid comments. Okay. Xbox wrestled Steve Regal. What'd you think of the match, Bruce? I thought that, uh, he's a man, such a man, a real man. He's a man's man, a real man. I actually got that from the words of the song this time. And I thought they had a damn good match. Did you not think they had a good match? They go to a double count out here and, uh, they get uh, a look at McMahon and he's mad about it because this means that Austin got a buy. And McMahon had slaughter run out and then ordered the match to continue to a finish with a five minute overtime. And, uh, X-Pac is selling an injury and just walks away. The bell rings. And instead of raising Regal's hand via forfeit because X-Pac quit, it's still a draw and both are eliminated. So how did any of that make any sense? Well, because it was a pig fuck, and I don't think that anybody really went over exactly what the hell they were supposed to do with that. And that's one of those Pat Patterson finishes when you think you've got a a double count out or a double DQ. Well, goddamn, start the match over again. And I think X-Pac really got hurt and was injured and couldn't go on. And we were going to a fucking throw it out anyway. So it doesn't make any sense. If you restart the match, you must have a finish and you don't have a finish. Then just fucks what you just did. How many stars would you give it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, double fuck you. What? God damn. I'm not allowed to say what he gave it. What would you give it? Motherfucker. 3.6. You, I hate you. Can I just tell you, I hate, I'm going to, I'm going to fucking punch you in the dick when I see 3. you. 3.6. If I see you Friday night or Saturday morning, either way, you're getting fucking punched in the dick. I just want you to know. Working. Are you going to do one of them punches? Like to teach you in the secrets of professional wrestling? No, I'm going to punch you in the face. Like Nia Jackson ruin your career. My career has been ruined. That's true. Years, but that's because you brought guns to work. It's not because somebody smashed yeah, your face well, before your biggest man event of your life. You know, fuck it. All right, let's move along then. Uh, Ken Shamrock beats Goldust five minutes and 56 seconds. Uh, what'd you think of this match? Goldust without Marlena here. Shamrock's got a bit of an edge. Uh, this could be another opportunity to push him. He gets the win. Uh, Goldust is trying to set up the shattered dream spot, but the ref is in the way. There's a hurricane Rana belly to belly. And then the ankle lock. What'd you think? I thought it sucked. Um, why I I don't know. I I just don't think they had chemistry. First of all, Kenny was working like a goddamn baby face in the match and he's the heel in the match and gold is doing more heel shit than Ken is. It just, I just don't know that they had any chemistry and I'm a big fan of both guys. And I've always felt that gold dust could work with a broomstick. This particular match is sat there watching it going, man, they're in the wrong roles. And nobody cared. And it just, it, it just wasn't good. I just think that they were a mishmash from, from the get go. 
Uh, next up, we see a backstage report from Michael Cole, and he's noting that Steve Austin is hurting, but he's saying he's going to find a way to be there for his next match. And next up, we've got Rock taking on Bossman, and Triple H is supposed to be here, and he's been advertised from the beginning, but he's not even here to do the usual like injury angle on the pregame show. Where was Triple H? Why he had been advertised here? I mean, I, I believe he's out because of knee surgery, but why not address it? Well, we, and again, we did address it. We advertised him in a way that we told people he, he's not going to be there folks, but it was a heel Vince McMahon saying, well, by God, he's in the tournament and he better be there or else. And by advertising him and by putting him in, a, him in there and the storylines that we told on TV, you were telling people he's not going to be there and he's hurt. There's no way for him to compete. But it was a way for Vince, again, to continue the storyline of fucking Steve Austin, having the fix in in this tournament. So, again, now you're two top guys in the tournament. So you think are Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock. The next guy that Vince wants to get out, the thorn in his side, is The Rock. So send Boss Man out to take The Rock out. But Rock catches him one, two, three, and Rock gets the hell out of there which is you're going to see at the end of this thing, they was in cahoots. So it's a fun finish three seconds, uh, but it tells the story like you're saying. And the story they're telling here is that even though the rock should have had a buy, he doesn't. And, um, this match with boss man is nothing, but it is part of the story that reveals itself. And Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe stole the show with their promo. And Mr. McMahon has come out to tell you not a pay to catch a chase. chase. I think the best thing on the show, I'm not saying this to be funny, is Briscoe trying to crotch chop and Patterson <laughs> showing him the proper way to crotch chop. And Patterson nails a crotch chop. I mean, nailed it. Well, of course he does. I mean, it's good stuff. Yeah. You don't think that's one of the highlights of the show? Absolutely. They're fucking just their stuff. <laughs> Even the pieces backstage with Vince. And, and if you listen to Briscoe and Patterson and Slaughter behind him is abs just classic shit with them trying to one up each other with the ass kissing and phenomenal. They stole the show. And anytime you put them out there. Next up, we got Undertaker and Kane working together. And, um, I think you can tell here that, uh, the Undertaker's hurting pretty bad. If you watch this back, uh, this is a cool look for the Undertaker, uh, but this is not their best match, at least from, from my perspective, they go seven minutes and 16 seconds. Uh, they have a, uh, a buy to the second round, similar to the way Hulk and Andre did back at WrestleMania four. Uh, and, and as a result, this is really a 14 man tournament, much like WrestleMania four, instead of a 16 man, I assume he gave them both a buy because undertaker's hurting. And, uh, well, I'll let you talk about the match fire away. God damn. Thank God it was short for whatever reason, either to, you know, undertaker and Kane, all of their matches, you go back from the first time that they met, even going back to that WrestleMania 10 match. They're either on or they're off. And on this night, they were off. And Taker was hurting. Yes, he was. So it was it was definitely made to be short. But it just was 
clumsy and the guys kind of trying to beat the fuck out of each other. But won one of their best outings. And I I actually wrote down, thank God it was short. Uh, Not bad, not great. And not going to be down there in the classics of uh, Buddy Rogers and Pat O'Connor. Two great friends are wrestling each other next. Mankind and Al Snow. And uh, it's revealed on a split screen that McMahon is the person who stole Mr. Sacco. And uh, I don't know. What do you think of this? <laughs> Mr. McMahon, that was pure genius. The way that you took that sock and you tie, you know, just painting out as obvious as we possibly could. Um, Al and Mick are great friends. And <laughs> the match was entertaining, but there was so much gaga throughout, you know, there was good shit in the show, but I found, I found it entertaining, but it was gaga and it was, it was some fun gaga with Mick taking the the mannequin head and putting it in a headlock and beating the shit out of the mannequin head. <laughs> it was for entertainment purposes. Well, I mean, I didn't think he was beating. I love you. Just had to explain. He's beating that mannequin head for entertainment purpose. What the fuck do you think we think he's beating Wait, it for? Because you can't pin the head. Ain't got no shoulders. God. Uh. You know, so the, the head with the, uh, the sock on it. I mean, th- some of this is fun, but to your point, there's no real wrestling matches on this show. No. No, there's not until you get to the really until the finals and the, and the one match that they had in there for time, the, the goddamn tag team match was well, brutal could be a word, but we're not there yet. Next up. We've got uh rock beating shamrock in eight minutes and 20 seconds. Uh, this was actually a pretty good match. We've got, uh, the, the big pop here for the people's elbow and, um, Shamrock kicks out of it and the fans sort of turn on it a little bit, which I thought was fun. Uh, boss band is here also trying to, uh, in- interfere here. Um, throwing him the nightstick to shamrock rock intercepts it hits shamrock. What'd you think? It's probably not the rock and shamrock's best match, but probably the best match on the card up to this point, in my opinion. Yeah, it definitely was. It was a good match, and it told the story again. When you go back and you piece all this shit together, and you see Rock in the right position, and Boss Man toss the nightstick in. That night, you think he's tossing it into Shamrock, but he's in, in real in reality, he's tossing it to the rocks. When you go back and look at it, and you watch it with those glasses on, it's like, it was pure genius in so many ways. And this whole night, how everything unfolded and to that, you think, God damn, you know, that was, that was good shit. And their mat, their match was good. Uh, but it added to it, you know, with the finish and told a great story of rock overcoming the odds all the way through this damn thing. Uh, I guess we should mention that the rock finally gets a pin here over Ken. He lost to him at the Royal rumble. He lost to him at WrestleMania. He lost to him at King of the ring. This is all in 98. Um, he pinned him and made him tap at the rumble and at mania, but the decisions were reversed. So in the end, uh, this is really a big deal. Um, Sable winds up pinning Jacqueline to win the WWF title in uh three minutes and 14 seconds. Shane McMahon is your referee. 
It's Abel's going to do the TKO early, but Mark Merrow, who's sitting at ringside, saves Jackie by pulling Sable off of her. Uh, what do you think? Not a uh, not a clinic, but still not a terrible match. Not a bad outing for them. And I believe this is the first time that the women's title had been defended on a WWF pay per view in more than three years back when it was Bertha Faye and Alundra Blaze. So it is kind of a cool deal to see that belt make a return. What'd you think? Uh, I think it was one of the scariest power bombs I've ever seen in my life. The one that Sable gave Mark Merrill on the outside of the ring. I was like, Oh my God, when it happened, I'm just God, get him up, get him up. Um, it was, it was what it was. I mean, it was Jacqueline showing how great of a worker that she is and being able to get Sable out of there. Uh, in a good match and Sable being able to pull off everything she needed to pull off and make the match believable and good. So during it, you know, you got two women out there and I'm watching the referee because it's Shane. And I just love watching Shane's facial expressions because he doesn't want to screw up and, and it's a big night for him, but he did, you know, he did good and it was what it was. It wasn't supposed to be this great fucking, uh, Moodle Leilani Kai match. Uh, let's talk about the next match here. Mankind and Austin, uh, they try to tell a real story here. Mankind is, um, he's working over the left arm of Steve Austin. He's still selling the uh, beating from boss man earlier today. And he winds up ripping off the shoes and tuxedo off of mankind. And mankind winds up working a lot of the match in his socks. Uh, Vince and his gang, uh, Stu just come out. Austin's going for the stunner. Um, lots of shenanigans here, uh, referee bumps. There's, there's just a lot of other stuff, including Shane McMahon coming in as the second referee counting the two and then flipping off Austin and starting to laugh, which is probably the thing that people remember the most about this Briscoe hits Austin with a love tap with a chair. And then Austin lays down for the three count with Shane counting quote, it's lucky nobody takes this stuff seriously because after everything Austin has taken and gotten up from, it makes no sense to lay down for such a weak chair shot. Then they did a getaway car tease as Patterson, Briscoe and Slaughter got in a limo and fled theoretically with Vincent Shane with them. Austin steals a van and leaves after him three stars. So the matches, uh, I mean, we saw a lot of mankind and dude love and, uh, you know, just all of the the stuff from sort of the early summer and spring with Austin and Mick Foley. And here we see it again, not a bad match tells a good story. Shane McMahon counting and then flipping him off is a cool moment for sure. But this fucking chair shot. Well, dude, it wasn't supposed to be a chair shot. We've talked about this before in the big boss man, uh, episode and in different episodes, uh, the chair shot saved the fucking match. What was supposed to happen was again, you have this, they did have a hell of a match and you build up to where finally Austin referee's gone and Austin gets the fucking pin. And here comes Shane McMahon who has formed a bond with stone cold, Steve Austin. It's one, two, fuck you. Steve gets up. And when Steve gets up and goes to Shane, Shane backs into the corner and that's where the big boss man was supposed to be in the ring and nailing Steve from behind. And it was supposed to be boss man to do the damage to Steve and much more than 
a chair shot. It wasn't supposed to be Briscoe. Well, when Shane got backed up and he's looking and he's looking and there's no boss man. And Shane's trying to tell Steve and Steve's like going, you know, where the fuck is he? And I'm screaming in the gorilla position, where the fuck is boss man? Because boss man was standing with everybody, with the corporation when it was time to go out. And when I sent him to the ring, boss man was there. So now everybody at ringside is looking around and realize, well, shit, boss man's not at ringside. And I'm in the back and I'm screaming, where the fuck is boss man? Where is boss man? Boss man. And I'm looking at all the cameras and I'm asking him to shoot. He's got to be out there. Some, somebody tell him to get in the ring. And Kevin Dunn tells me, Bruce, he's not out there. And I'm pretty pissed, uh, stunned, don't know what the fuck to do. And that's when they made the audible. Somebody get in the ring and, so, you know, they slid a chair in. Somebody hit Steve with the chair. Now you've got the goose that laid the golden egg in Steve Austin, okay, your biggest star. He's in the ring. And you got Jerry Briscoe in there, and Steve's got a bad neck. And you got to hit him with the chair, and Steve's trying to position himself. Steve doesn't know what the hell's coming. And Jerry swung the chair, and Jerry's not going to swing the chair like he's swinging for the fences and take Steve's head off and fuck up his neck even more. So he does what he had to do, and they sold it. It was the shits. But then Big Boss Man finally made his goddamn way down to ringside and gets down there and like, which way did they go? Um, It was drizzling shits. Boss Man was in the dressing room going over his, his next match with Undertaker. And he had asked... Apparently, when everybody was going out, hey, do I need to go out? I, I got to go over my match. I haven't gone over it with Taker yet. And somebody told him yes, but he was standing there. I mean, I, I remember it vividly and just never went out. So that's why all that happened. It wasn't that was that wasn't the finish. That wasn't what was planned. That was trying to save something and try and make something happen um, out of a fucked up deal. What's Vince's reaction? Livid. But on top, on top of livid, okay, he's got to go and do the scene where they leave in the limo. So he can't even come to the back and find out what happened yet. All right. They've got to leave in the limo and, and fucking leave and go take a lap around the block before they come back. And no one knows at this point. And Steve. Steve couldn't come back and find out what the hell happened because Steve had to get in the car and drive off. So I'm still trying to find out, and, and Boss Man didn't. Boss Man came through, and, and I, I called him back. So what the hell happened? He says, I was going over my match. So, dude, you were here. You, you were the finish. Just fucked up. Sorry. Fucked up. So the biggest match, really, that was, other than the, the last match, that was the biggest match on the whole fucking show. Yeah, and he fucked up the finish. What's Austin's reaction? Livid. Vincent, Vincent, Steve. I remember by the time that Vince got back to me, he was, you know, we still had the rest of the show. So they've got to, they've got to prepare and go over all that stuff. But he, he didn't want to talk about it right then, but you could tell that he was pissed and Steve, you know, same thing. Uh, by the time Steve got back, Steve didn't, it was like, it's over. It's done. Let's, let's get through the fucking night. And then after 
you know, and, and again, uh, you have a checklist. You're, you're looking at everybody. You check everybody's name off. He was there. I don't know what else to say. I, I, he was there when everybody went out. And then when everybody went out, he went back to the dressing room. I don't know. I don't know what the hell he was thinking to this day. He said, goes, well, I asked. So why would you ask? Why would you ask if you don't have to go out for the match that you're the finish? Fucked up. Sometimes you just fuck up. And that's the only answer to it is, is it was a fuck up. And, and to this day, what's it referred to as? the tink heard round the world. So hypothetically, if you were to mention the tink heard round the world to Steve Austin or Vince McMahon, you reckon they know what you're talking about? Uh, Vince would Jerry Briscoe would, I don't know if Steve would, but Vince and Jerry Briscoe definitely would. Cause we, cause we ribbed Jerry, you know, but, and Jerry gets hot, Jerry and rightfully so Jerry was put in a shitty fucking position. Hit, hit the fucking main guy in the company with the chair. And he's, oh, by the way, he's got a bad neck. Don't fuck up his neck. Jerry did the right thing. Thank God he did something, <laughs> you know? Otherwise, they'd still be in the fucking ring trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> but, um, you know, Shane, and, and again, Shane for being the first time in the ring and all that, man, Shane, people did the right thing in the situation. Thank God Shane didn't freeze. Shane rolled out trying to, to give boss man more time thinking maybe he's running in. Um, and they called an audible right there and, and got guys in and did what they had to do, but it was chiseling shits. I was terrified cause I, I figured, well, hell, um, everybody's going to jump my ass for it, but there were other people there and even Pat and Pat, all the guys at ringside, they were all like, I thought boss man was out with us. He was right there with us. They all thought he was out there and he wasn't. And the other funny thing about it is, you know, Vince had that motorized wheelchair, but if you notice, he always had Pat push it. Right. <laughs> which again, which is just funny to me. It is funny. You know, one of the things I'm noticing as we're going through here, is just how many fucking matches there are. You know, like you go back and you say, let's go back a couple of years, 1996, including the pre-show. There's seven matches on the card a year later at survivor series, 1997, there's seven matches on the card a year after this show, there's 10 matches on the card for survivor series, 1998. And again, it's a tournament. So I get it's different. 18 fucking matches. That's a lot. God dude. damn value. value. Quantity. Not quality. Who cares about stars? God damn. They got six guys in one fucking match. <laughs> what more do you want? How about eight guys? Oh, well, hey, what about 30 men? How about, how about fucking eight guys on a pole? Next up, we got rock and undertaker. They're going to go to a DQ rock gets the win in eight minutes and 23 seconds. Uh, not their best match. Boss man is here again. I feel like he should have just sat up by the fucking timekeeper and been there the entire show. Uh, what'd you think of uh, rock and undertaker here? <laughs> well, I wrote, a, I wrote on my, on my notes for this match. Like, well, fucking boss man was here for this. 
Um, I think boss man didn't want to leave. Didn't want to leave the ring at that point. Uh, again, taker was hurt, man. It wasn't great. And the whole idea was to paint the picture of, of rock being that underdog going into this shit. And the Vince is going to fuck him in the end to make mankind the champion now at this point. But <laughs> again, for, I remember you have flashbacks to certain points and I remember sitting back. I can picture that gorilla position like it was yesterday and just sitting back the whole time wanting to know how in the hell can we fuck up the most important match of the night? And I just kept going back to that. Nothing else mattered to me at that point in the night. Uh, mankind is interviewed by Michael Cole backstage and mankind said, lady luck is on his side. If you smell what the sock is cooking. And next up, we get the uh, New Age Outlaws regaining the tag titles. They beat the Headbangers, Mark Henry and D'Lo Brown. This is uh, this is a throwaway segment to get the guys the belt back, or that's what it felt like to me. What say you? This this was uh, hey we 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 need a buffer in here, so let's let's have a buffer because Rock needs a little time to get together with everybody and everything. So. Let's go grab 10 minutes. Good God. You know, a, a triple threat with three guys is hard to do. And they're not the most entertaining match in the world. A triple threat tag team match is damn near impossible to do in the drizzling shits to watch. They had no psychology and were just doing shit to do shit. And it, it showed. It was, it was, it was, that's why it felt like filler because it was. Not a great match. Um, I, I've never really liked when there's multiple tag teams like this. I think two tag teams is enough. When you start to get three and four and five and six tag teams, it starts to feel like overkill. Let's say you. It was overkill and it was a drizzling shits. And on top of it, you throw in that DX, uh, the outlaws just didn't have any chemistry with the headbangers. So. Uh, they did have, yeah, I felt they did have chemistry with D'Lo and Mark. They, those guys had some good matches and entertaining matches, but for whatever reason, the outlaws and the headbangers, it was always a clash of styles. And so now you throw all, you, you throw them into an already decent match and make it a, a gimmick match. And it was a hodgepodge of bullshit. Let's talk about our main event. Rock and mankind, they get 17 minutes and 10 seconds. Vince and Shane come out. Uh, there's brawling everywhere. There's crazy, uh, spots with backdrops and barricades and ring steps and chair shots. And even Jr. is calling out how many brain cells that mankind has lost here. Uh, big stuff. And you know, they still do some of the silliness. Uh, the Socko Claw and things like that, the rock bottom. But finally, he puts, he being the rock pronouns pal, he puts the sharpshooter on mankind and Vince calls for the bell. And this is the one year anniversary of the Montreal screw job in 1997. And Vince grabs the belt, comes in with a huge smile on his face. Extends his arm. The rock extends his and Shane extends his three-way hug. And we find out that these guys were all in cahoots and the rock is now, I guess the youngest world champion in history 
or one of them. And, um, yeah, he's your world champion. It's his crowning moment. And he is now flip-flopped from being the second hottest baby face to now he's a super heel and mankind is struggling to keep up Austin uh, or not Austin, but, uh, the rock cuts a promo and there we are. Uh, Austin eventually does show up though. The McMahon's run away, leaves the rock to brawl with him. Of course he gets a stunner for his trouble. And then he hits uh, mankind with a stunner just for good measure. The finish is obviously playing off the Montreal screw job. Uh, a year prior to this, allegedly Mick Foley in real life was so upset. He was threatening to quit a year later. He is complicit in an angle, sort of mocking it. What'd you think? I thought that it was a tremendous match. I was not a fan of the sharpshooter finish. Just not my cup of tea. However, the story, everything that culminated in that finish, uh, I thought was masterfully done and, and beautifully done. The fact that nobody saw it coming and people were genuinely stunned that that was good. I just would have done it a different way. I just, I, I thought that the Montreal screw job thing was too inside and not very creative. So the match itself, the story and all that was great. I think that one of the, the funniest thing to me at the very end, when Vince gets the, the belt and he's trying to snap it on rock and he can't get it snapped. <laughs> it's funny as shit because you you can see Vince tell Rock, it's like, you're gonna have to hold it. <laughs> and Rock takes the thing, throws it over his shoulder. But for me, it was watching, it was funny watching Vince wrestle with the damn snaps and not being able to get it snapped because it looked like I guess it was a new belt uh that we used that night. And it was awful stiff and he couldn't get it snapped. And of course, Steve coming out at the end, Austin must stun. Hogan must pose, Austin must stun, and leave everybody happy, happy, joy, joy. Is this the greatest, uh, single show storyline in company history? I don't know about in company history. It was pretty damn good. It was a big swerve. And I think people still talk about it today. Overall, when you watch the show, I thought it was a damn fun show to watch and going back, it, you know, it still holds up. There's a lot of gaga and a lot of bullshit, but it was fun. And I enjoyed the storytelling in it and hats off to Vince Russo uh, for getting a lot of that through. And it was Russo and McMahon that put all that shit together. So hats off to him. And it was some entertaining stuff and worth going back and watching. Uh, in his book, Foley would write by virtue of his charisma, good looks, endless stream of catchphrases and two big moves. The rock was riding a huge wave of momentum and popularity into the finals. One of his two moves, the people's elbow was the most ludicrous thing I'd ever seen in any form of entertainment, but the effect it had on a crowd was phenomenal. Momentum and popularity aside, I had to be considered the heavy favorite going in due to my close relationship with dad. I only had one problem. I really had no clue what I was going to do in this huge main event. I was physically exhausted and mentally drained for a wrestler with only two years experience. The rock had incredible poise in the ring. But he too looked worn and confused. Uh, we locked up and I drew a blank, another lockup, another blank. I was worried as hell. Within minutes, I had the rock on the mat with a rear chin lock. A sure sign of the match was going down the tubes. So 
it's sort of fun to me that, that we get his perspective on this because I do think sort of lost in the shuffle when I'm putting over that it's 18 matches, even though, you know, a lot, a lot of this is a tournament and some of them are just quick matches. Like his match against Dwayne Gill, he being mankind it was only 30 seconds. His match against Al snow, three minutes and 55 seconds. But then he's in there for 10 and a half minutes with Austin and 17 minutes with the rock. You're asking a lot of a guy here. Are you not? Well, if you were, if you were going to ask the old school guy, I mean, back in my day, you know, when guys wrestle 60 minute matches and, and I always enjoyed that because I'd say, yeah, but 40 minutes of it was in a rear chin lock. Um, it was asking an awful lot out of them, but they had time in between and we asked it of the professionals and the guys that we thought could pull it off and Mick and rock. We thought could pull it off and they did. That's why when I hear talent and they critique themselves in the way that Mick did in his book, I, I always say, you know what? You knew what was supposed to happen or you had an idea in your head, what you wanted to happen. The audience doesn't. So you go out and you tell them a story. As long as you get that story across, that's what was supposed to happen. And as long as people enjoy it, then that's all that matters. So when shit screws up and you react to it, like it's a screw up, then people go, Oh, he fucked up. But we built some of that shit in. We used to build that shit in with Shawn Michaels sometimes, just so we would get people talking, Oh, they screwed up. And we would chuckle when people go, Oh, they screwed up this spot. Um, I thought it was, I thought they told a hell of a story and did a hell of a damn good job. And talent is their own worst critic. And Mick Foley is one of those people that will beat himself up because he has a vision sometimes and he wants everything to be perfect. And I thought he did a damn great job out there telling a great story. You know, you guys at this point, does you already know your WrestleMania main event is going to be rock and Austin? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know at one point it was kicked around, or at least it was written that it was kicked around that it was going to be rock Austin and mankind. And then allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, Shawn Michaels would get in Austin's ear and it would be changed to a singles match. But by this point, you thought the 26 year old Dwayne Johnson, he's our next star. By this point, we took the two hottest baby faces, flipped one of them heel against the other and felt that was going to be our next four months. When did you know? Cause you know, we, we obviously can trace back to the groundwork being laid with Shane two weeks prior to survivor series. Did you know two weeks prior to that, a month out from this six months out, when did the decision become, all right, it's rocking Austin WrestleMania 15. Now, how do we get there? I I'll bet it was probably SummerSlam. Because rock after. man, rock was red fucking hot and Steve was red hot. So you're thinking what, where can we go? Where, what can we do? Um, and we wanted something new and fresh. Is there any hesitation, you know, cause even though you guys are, um, you, you know, winning the Monday night war at this point, I mean, it's still close. You're not, it's not just a, a runaway victory. The other channel has a lot of established guys and one, one sort of new guy. And that's bill Goldberg. Did you think that the rock was your answer to, to, to Goldberg? Did you think that the rock was a risk 
because he, and, and I think that gets overlooked a lot because he made his debut at survivor series, 1996. So here we are just two years later and he's the world champion. Was there a concern that, you know, we're, we're betting on an unknown. Quite the contrary, because rock was over. Steve was over and it was, it was at a time that when you listened to the audience and you did get feedback on the other guys, majority of the feedback was that we were young and they were old. I don't, I don't mean necessarily unknown in terms of he's not a name. I mean, in terms of he's Drawing. A, well, no, not even that he's a variable. This is a different lifestyle and it's not something where, um, it's not for everybody. You know what we've seen a lot of guys who, you know, we fans think, oh, he's going to be the next big star or whatever, but it doesn't really work out because you know, that lifestyle is just not for them. It's, it's a grind. You ask a lot of them, whatever. Is there a concern just two years in, maybe he's not ready. I mean, you, you sort of talked about Teddy Hart earlier and you said, no, he just lacked the maturity. He wasn't ready. That didn't have anything to do with drawing. That was just, just personality. Well, you had rock who, first of all, he was older. He had been out on his own. He was also a third generation wrestler. Well, hang on. I want to be clear. I'm not necessarily comparing him to Teddy Hart. I'm just saying you're sort of anointing a 26 year old here in a time where it hasn't really been handled by 26 year olds. I mean, you've been asking, uh, older guys, Austin had been in the business eight years before it happened for him. I don't know how long Brett had been or, or Sean had, but these guys were tenured guys for a long time. And now here's a guy just a couple years in and you're saying, fuck it. He's the guy. Yeah. Because he was showing it every night he was going out and he had the poise and he had the wherewithal every single night to go out, command the crowd, take over. And we were willing to take that chance on him. You're doing live TV. So you can take it off of him anytime you want to. And the way that they were writing television at the time, you could flip the script anytime you wanted to. That's the beauty of doing live TV every single week. But he was worth taking the chance. And he had demonstrated that he was reliable. He was demonstrated that he really wanted it. And the audience had bought him. So why not take the chance on him? And and it was and it was new. He was he was that new, fresh young kid coming up. So let's talk about what happened the next night. Uh, but before we do, I want to mention what your boy, uh, Vince Russo had to say about this because he says it's his favorite angle he was ever a part of. And he says there was only Ed Ferrara and myself. The rock turn was something we mapped out months in advance. We knew where we were going with this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And we told a subtle story over the course of about eight weeks. And we wanted it to be like the movie usual suspects. You see the finish and it's holy crap. What happened? You could go back over that eight weeks and think, why didn't I see that? Russo said that leaving hints and breadcrumbs for fans and viewers was a crucial part of this story. He says there are so many little hints in the story leading up to that night that I'm proud as a writer to have written such an in-depth and detailed story. And he says they got around physicality by having the rock hit Vince with the people's elbow and the move was over so much. that got a great reaction, but ultimately it's just an elbow drop, something that was plausible to take for the team in an effort to fool the fans. And of course it all paid off 
at Survivor Series. Quote, I was in the building because I wanted to see the reaction. All of a sudden, McMahon calls for the bell, playing off what happened last year. Rock has mankind of the sharpshooter. And then there's an embrace with the Rock and McMahon. You could have heard a pin drop in the arena. Were you in Gorilla or were you in the building when it happened? Uh, I was at Gorilla. I was at Gorilla. And it was a great reaction. It was the exact reaction that everybody was going for. So it, it told a good story and it was meticulously told for several weeks to have you believe that rocker Austin was going to win that championship that night. And that Vince and mankind were going to do everything in their power so that he doesn't win it. Uh, so that neither one of them win it and they stacked the deck the other way. And Vince had rock in his pocket the whole time. We didn't do anything too over the top that you could go back and say, oh, well, Rock beat the shit out of Vince. And, and that's one of the things he refers to where Rock did little things that people could say, oh, see, he got Vince. When you go back and look at it, go, eh, he didn't do that much to him. So that, I, I agree, man. It was good storytelling. I, I'll go back and say I hated the sharpshooter finish, but the story and the ending and all that, everything else was very well done. Let's talk a little bit about the Hogan Andre finish at the main event in 1988. Um, first time you're in NBC on prime time, we've both called it the best angle in the history of wrestling. I really do believe that. And that finish and that, that story from that show set up the title tournament at WrestleMania four. And now we've got this great storyline to finish this title tournament. 10 years later, if you had to compare and contrast the main event, and the story that's told there with the twin referees versus this swerve with the rock to join the corporation here at survivor series, 1998, 10 years later, which do you prefer? I still prefer the twin referees because it was the first time and it was so out of the fucking blue. Yeah. And, and it, it worked, you know, it, uh, it did big business for them then, but this did big business here as well. I guess I should tell you the next night on raw in Lexington, Kentucky, it's another sellout, 17,610 fans in Lexington, an incredible gate, 326 grand, over a hundred thousand dollars in merchandise. So a total haul of over 426,000 that night. And the show's going to open up with Vince and Shane, along with rock telling the whole story of the swerve. And they even throw to a videotape of judge mills lane of boxing referee fame ruling that the contract that Austin signed for a title shot that was supposed to happen tonight is uh, valid and binding, and he's going to get it. Uh, we also see the insane clown posse being involved on this show. Lots of skits with Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, uh, something fun with Regal and Godfather, which we talked about last week. There's lots of, of silliness here on this show, but when we finally get to uh, the main event, I guess we should mention, this is kind of fun. Briscoe and Patterson, one of their many, many skits here is wearing shoulder pads and football helmets going into the boiler room, looking for mankind, which is fun. Uh, but the title shot, Austin rock for the title, you know, you've got interference, you got boss, man, you got Shamrock, you got mankind, you got undertaker, everybody's here. But when the show comes off the air, they have drawn a record. 5,766,000 viewers, which Meltzer would say is likely the largest audience in history. Uh, Nitro is only getting 4,508,000 followers. 
Uh, so you're going to get a rating of 5.5 for raw and nitro for a 4.25. Just incredible. Not only was it a great storyline for the pay-per-view, but it led to a huge rating. And just in the three raws we covered, it got progressively bigger and bigger and bigger. We, we take a lot of, uh, shots at Russo on this show, mostly, uh, fair, I would say, but here we got to give the dude his due. This is best work. Is it not? Yeah, it definitely was. And, and I'll give credit where credit's due. I thought it was an intriguing storyline and pulled off to perfection. Well, not all the way through, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was as good as it could be and damn intriguing storyline all the way through. So chat me up survivor series, 1998. Where do you rank this in the all time survivor series? Is this I don't say fucking top five, you know, going back, but see, here's as far as not being the traditional survivor series, probably one of the best ones ever. The, this was during a time that I would always fight. Why aren't we doing the damn tag team matches and the team series matches? Cause I, I always that. liked that. I hated it. You didn't, you don't like the team match. I liked it when I was a little kid, but now that I'm an adult, I fucking hate it. Well, I liked it because it made it different. And that's what I liked about the big five pay-per-views is usually they all had a different theme to them. And that's what I liked about survivor series. So as far as being one of the first that didn't have that theme is probably the best one. Well, we're going to cover one that was maybe not the best next week. It's going to be survivor series, 1988, and you're in for a treat a Thanksgiving tradition that we're starting here on the show. We started it last year. We're going to keep it going this year. We're going to go back to 1988, man. It's unbelievable that this is going to happen the way it is 30 years later. Uh, I loved 1988 and I loved the roster here. Here's what we're going to be talking about next week. Four matches. My friend, one of them, a single match goes more than 42 minutes. Wow. Check it out next week. It's a watch along. Don't watch it without us. I don't know why you would want to, but it's the blue blazer, Brutus beefcake, Jim Brunzel, Sam Houston, and the ultimate warrior taking on honky tonk, Ron Bass, dangerous, Danny Davis, bad news, Brown, and Greg Valentine. And then after that, the powers of pain team with the rockers, the British bulldogs, the heart foundation, and the young stallions to take on demolition, the brain busters, the Bolsheviks, the fabulous Rougeos and the conquistadors. Fuck you for doing this, Bruce 10 on 10. What are you doing? Ouch. Next up, Andre, the giant is going to team with Dino Bravo, Mr. Perfect, Rick rude and Harley race. And they're going to take on Jake Roberts, Jim Duggan, Ken Patera, Scott Casey, and Tito Santana. And then in your main event, this is fun. Hercules, Hillbilly Jim, Coco Beware, Hulk Hogan, and the Macho Man Randy Savage are going to team up to take on Akeem, the Big Boss Man, Haku, the Red Rooster, and Ted DiBiase. Five on five, 29 minutes that match goes. Man, how about some of these names here in a main event? the red rooster. Well, he was just in the match with Hulk in it. It's kind of hard to pick a main event with all those tremendous stars all up and down the card. You know, I grew up in this. I mean, this is when I really fell in love with wrestling was 1988. So I have such affection for so many of these names, but then you see a card like this and you're like, man, what the hell was this? We're going to get in our way back machine 
And we want you after you've got all that tryptophan in your system and you're wanting to fall asleep anyway, fire us up here on the JJ Dillon pod. I mean, fire us up here on something to wrestle and do a watch along with us for survivor series, 1988. It's your new Thanksgiving tradition. And, uh, on the other channel with, uh, Tony Schiavone and what happened when we're going to be, cares. we're going to talk about Starcade 1983. It's the 35 year anniversary. That should be kind of fun, huh? Yeah, I guess. Dude, are you, hang on now. I understand that you're a homer and you're over here towing the company line. I get it. I'm not mad about it, but the Starcade 1980, was that Harley and Rick Yeah. in a cage? Yeah. Okay, that's a great match. And you've also got a dog collar match with Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine. And meanwhile, you're over here like, well, Scott Casey and uh, damn right. And Coco Beware and Dino Bravo. And who could forget the Red Root of uh, the Bolsheviks right. and Danny Davis and Sam hell Houston? Yeah. Sam Houston, hell Four people saw that. I'm not arguing any of that. That's why we Crazy. love you here on the show. And we know you're going to love Omaha Steaks, man. This holiday season, send the gift to Omaha Steaks. Take it from me. You're going to be a hero when you use Omaha Steaks. You go to omahasteaks.com and enter our code WRESTLE into the search bar. 74% off. Here's what you're going to get the Omaha Steaks family gift package. It's only $49.99. Order today, you're going to get hand cut sirloin steaks that are tremendous, premium pork chops, Bruce's favorite, those kielbasa sausages, some burgers, and so much more. Just go to omahasteaks.com and type wrestle into the search bar and you're going to get that family gift package in your cart and boom 74% off dude 49.99 and i'm looking forward to it man we're going to do survivor series next week a little turkey day tradition and i've got a surprise for everybody next week i'm not going to i'm not going to spoil me. it here what's the surprise i'll tell you all fair but i will tell you this our listeners are going to love it you are not what is it? It's a little bonus. Why'd you do it like that? Well, they can't see me, but you can. Oh, okay. But you can see us this weekend, man. Get in your car. Come see us, LA. BruceBritchard.com. Tickets are on sale. We're going to be at the Regent Theater. We're going to have some professionals there. You catch my drift. It's going to be a good time. You don't want to miss it. And there's still some standing room only tickets available next weekend, Winston Salem, North Carolina. And we're coming across the pond. Fellas, come check us out. BrucePritchard.com is where you can pick up all your tickets. And the rumor and innuendo is some of the fun things that we've been talking about on the show. Going to start popping up on t-shirts again. Check them out at BrucePritchard.com or BoxAgimmicks.com. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. Follow us on Twitter. Ask questions about next week's show, Survivor Series 1988 at Pritchard Show. And we'll see you right here next week on 83 Weeks. No. Oh, what is it? Something to wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard. God damn it. Hey, you know what? How about you're fired up because I'm not saying your name. My name's never been in the title to the show. I'm renaming this motherfucker next week. No, it's something to wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson. I'm fine with Ann Conrad Thompson. How many years do we have to do this before I can get an Ann Conrad Thompson? We're going to work on that. Promise? I'm so happy. I'm so gay. I mean, we can't end the show until you do it. What? It. Okay. This was your idea. No, no, no. Not you promise. We end the show when you do something and I'm just filibustering because you haven't done it. Shaka.
Are you okay? John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.